0: Thus concludes our semester on Dragon Biology. Thank you, everyone, for coming, and I'll see you in the fall. Oh, boy, what a bunch of dummies. I wish I had some brilliant students in my class. Well, off to my office. This
1: equation is absolutely trivial. Well, you see, if you just carry what the limestone, is... and you add it to the gemstone.
0: Hey, thing. hey, you, That's... custodian down the hall. What are you doing?
1: Hi. Why, uh, nothing. I was just cleaning this equation with the right answers. Uh,
0: On this chalkboard, I've put the toughest question in all of s- dragonology.
1: But why, it's simply a matter of logic and science, you see. By this elaborate diagram I've drawn here, dragons can fly and breathe fire, and they're real, and I believe in them, and they believe in me.
0: Dear God, you've... You've answered the question. I see you've you've drawn this dirigible like structure and here you've marked the hydrochloric acid which seems to dissolve rapidly and into this honeycomb like structure It's
1: <laughs> simply science. And now I must just like a pack of dragons take flight
0: No wait you must you must tell me your name. Ah well luckily she's written it on the chalkboard here it says, Caitlin... Caitlin Cadjo? I'm
1: Caitlin Cadjo, an animator and illustrator, and I know a lot about how dragons do.
0: And I'm Professor Ira Marks. I write and philosophize about comics. And this is our podcast about cartoons, where two lifelong artists, fans, and academics talk about the magic, mystery, and logic behind bringing good cartoon stories to life.
1: Welcome to Cartoon Feelings 101. Hey, shut up. This is just like Good Will Hunting, and then we get into a fight.
0: I've
1: got feelings, yes I do. I've got feelings, how about you? We've got feelings, yes we do. We've
0: dragons dragon time
1: it's always dragon time for me honestly
0: (laughs) right off the bat i was just like wow i wonder what kind of dragon caitlin's doing because i'm sure it's a specific
1: it isn't actually it should be i'm i don't know you know honestly if i was doing specific dragons i would be like i'm not going to try it now but like doing like a sean connery impression so then you would know that it was being the dragon heart dragon like I can't think of really like an iconic roar for a dragon.
0: Uh, no, it's pretty varied. I think it depends on the personality, right? More so than the uh, the breed or species.
1: A lot of dragons too are either like it's generic dragon, they have generic dragon sounds, or they have like a funny voice actor, like it's Mushu. <laughs> like there's no in between there really. This Godzilla count? Like Godzilla's roar is incredibly iconic.
0: Well, I actually think we're about to talk about all these things because I need to whisk you away to the 24th, Yes. no, I'm sorry, the 21st annual Rutherford County Fair Livestock Show. Now, what I'm realizing about the Rutherford County Fair is that it seems to be like the crossroads of all fictional uh, narratives. So all these things just kind of conjoin in this space, I guess. And we're here just in time for the uh, Dragon Competition.
1: I'd like to go there.
0: Yeah, well, you're here now. You're going to flex those muscles. You know how you're there? Incredible. That's the main signifier.
1: It smells terrible. <laughs> here.
0: Yeah, I mean, we haven't brought in the cleaning crew yet. This is this is all left from Unicorn, uh, the Unicorn Exhibition.
1: Wow, who knew? The one bad thing about unicorns, they stink. Nobody talks about that.
0: No, not even us. The biggest <laughs> fans of unicorns. <laughs> we, we neglected. That was on the, uh, that was cut. I had to cut that conversation out. We didn't want to insult our friends.
1: Yeah, they were right there.
0: So here, here at the dragon competition at the Rutherford County Fair Livestock Show, Caitlin, you're going to be assigning three ribbons to our exhibitors. And as they come out, you know, it's kind of like a nice mix of dragons from all over the world. You're going to, you know, assess them. We'll talk about them, you know, fairly briskly. And then you're going to give them each a ribbon. The three ribbons are best companion, most rude, and most believable, which doubles as best dragon. Because the most believable dragon is, I I say, the best dragon.
1: Can he also be my companion, though?
0: Ah, well, this is that. This is where the the this is the burden of the judge. Uh, <laughs> it's dividing things up in ways you don't feel like dividing them up into. <laughs> I'll do it. So uh, we're going to open the gate and let our first exhibitor in. We and I've tried to go kind of chronologically here. And if you want to just dismiss any of these, you can just say "shoo" and they'll uh, fly off. Or
1: that would be my wait, pleasure. You know,
0: <laughs> yeah. So we have to start with the Hydra of uh, Lerna. I don't know how you say it in Latin, but... uh, I
1: believe that is correct. As a student of the classics.
0: (laughs) So, you know, pal of Hercules. We've got the Hydra with, I guess, more of a serpent-style dragon, if anything.
1: Yes. uh, It is my understanding, pushing up my invisible glasses, Mm -hmm. that... I was reading about this recently, as one does, kind of... like not in relation to the podcast but somebody was tweeting about how there's this preconception that every culture around the world has had dragons like in their mythology or that it's like really really common in all of these independent cultures that grew up like without any communication to each other and he was kind of poking holes in that by being like this is sort of true but they're really obviously based on different things and one of them that i never thought before was that all of like the greek and like the Roman and that kind of classics era of stuff were all like more snake monsters, and yeah. I guess even like the like pottery depictions of the Hydra were a lot less dragony or like didn't have legs that kind of thing. So that was kind of interesting.
0: Yeah, that makes sense, and that's something they kind of exploit in the. Uh, I feel like in the Godzilla movies, they like, or or actually any sci-fi movie, I think even in the Alien franchise, they're like. All these things were appearing in different cultures around the world, and therefore it must be true. Like that, it's just a great way to kind of
1: yeah. uh,
0: add validity to like a, a fictional.
1: Yeah, I think Godzilla, King of the Monsters, did that too. <laughs> really gave it a grounding in believability. <laughs> I recommend it.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's good. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta watch the Godzilla movies. Yeah, I mean,
1: you know what you're getting into.
0: All right, so the Hydra also. Just one last note on the Hydra. I think it's like in the the Hydra even crosses over into like Bible stuff, I think.
1: Yes, there is like a seven headed dragon that shows up in Revelations and he's Satan or whatever, I guess. I was always displeased that like the awesome imagery was always supposed to be bad. (laughs) Like, okay.
0: I know. Yeah. And I think we're going to see some of that for, you know, in the movie today, like the evil stuff just kind of looks coolest.
1: Yes, 100%. (laughs) Absolutely.
0: Okay, the, the uh, Hydra has taken its spot along the railing, and in comes the Jabberwocky from Alice in Wonderland.
1: Now, this one I was surprised to see here, because what is the Jabberwocky? I never thought of it as a dragon, although, like, I guess that's correct.
0: I mean, yeah, I guess... Okay, well, I guess this gets into a bigger topic that's going to make this episode 19 hours long. But there's, <laughs> like, the visualization of a dragon in animation in these stories. And I got into this a little last week. It's like, oh, it is, it does change the meaning of a creature when you need to illustrate the thing for a viewing audience than when you describe it in, you know, around the campfire or Inverse. in a book. Yeah. Like there's an, you, you steal like an abstraction away from it that I think sometimes fundamentally, not fundamentally always, but kind of changes it. And the Jabberwocky is something that it's kind of coolest in its poem version is just a weird uh, description of all these like interesting elements. And just cause it's like got that Lewis Carroll vibe. It's, it's kind of uh, what's the term like, you know, the nonsense style.
1: Yeah. It's very all over the place. Like something I always liked just in a similar vein, I feel like they did it well Is in that animated Alice in Wonderland, like the, I guess like from the sixties. Uh um, huh. They have momraths or something that are mentioned in that Jabberwocky poem. It's like, and the momraths outgrave, obviously they did. And they have momraths like depicted in the movie. And they're just like little legs with like little tufts of hair and eyes. And that's it. And I was always like very taken with that and enamored with that. But like, that is just purely somebody saw momraths and were like, Well, obviously they're like little creatures and they're like little pants with hair, whatever, blah, blah, blah. That's the fun of that. But you're totally right that like I Googled this really quickly. And then you see all of these drawings of the Jabberwocky and he looks really dragony. But like if you read the thing, the poem. Right. There is nothing in here that is like he looks like maybe a dragon would. It's just not in there. It's really left up to your imagination for the most part.
0: Yeah, it's kind of uh, the illustrator. I think it's like John John Tenenel or something like that, who gave it the big rabbit teeth, and it's got like pterodactyl wings, and that's the book. That's the illustration that's in the original edition of the book, and then and it is cool. Also, the other thing that makes it kind of dragon-like is, I believe, in the story, the Jabberwocky fights a knight. Or at least it's drawn that way, because um, there's a knight in one of the illustrations. So that kind of gives it a, a dragon feel. Where yeah, it's, the um, Vorpal a, blade. Yeah, how could
1: I forget the <laughs> Vorpal blade?
0: I, I forgot it. <laughs> so I think by simply, um, you know, using a dragon as kind of like a symbol of bravery. Or like using the creature as like a, like a challenge, right? Like an obstacle on the hero's journey. That It, it kind of makes it more dragon-like in that way. Because you're not going to like fight a unicorn on your way to becoming a hero.
1: No, I would never do that. You're totally right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right. So the Jabberwocky, uh, you know, we're grabbing it by its reins and leading it over to the wall. And now back to Godzilla. We've got the king of all kings, mm. Ghidorah.
1: Love. Huge fan. Huge fan of Ghidorah.
0: You, I think you you're you're probably the person I know that loves Godzilla the most.
1: Which is really funny because like I know other people that are really into Godzilla, and there are people who like know them by each era. Like this is like a show era, like Godzilla, whatever. And like I don't really know them to that degree. But even when mm-hmm. I was a really little kid, if there was a Godzilla movie on TV, like I'm watching it, I like really didn't care what was happening. There's just something about it I absolutely love innately, and I always will. And it's just gotten better and better. And, like, again, Godzilla King of the Monsters. Like, these movies are so stupid. Like, they are the dumbest stuff that human hands can make. But they're so great. And, like, King Ghidorah in that movie is fucking awesome. You guys need to watch this. He looks so cool. Like, ugh.
0: Yeah, what year is that one King of Monsters? That's a like a 60s one.
1: Oh, no, I'm talking about the modern one. It might be like a a remake, I don't know, but this one like just came out in the the modern Oh one. yeah, no, that
0: one's cool too. Yeah. A couple
1: years back when I was it came out when I was in New Zealand with my dad and I made him go see it with me even though we could have been doing anything else cool in New Zealand on vacation and I was like but I really want to see this movie in like a nice movie theater. So we went to New Zealand's only IMAX To see this movie. And I don't regret it at all.
0: So I think I'm thinking of... uh, So there's Destroy All Monsters, which I'm not sure if that's the original appearance of King Ghidorah, which is basically like a giant wrestling match with... It's all the same characters that are in the movie you're talking about. Like Mothra shows up. Mm -hmm. But they're all just people in suits, so they're just slamming against each other. Uncut, basically, for 88 minutes.
1: Yeah, which I am kind of sad that they don't do that anymore. But at the same time... The CG is really good. And I You know, it's a lost art. Sort of. I actually haven't seen Shin Godzilla, which I think they do that, right? Like, isn't that more of a... Yeah.
0: I need one's, to see that uh, so bad. Well, it's like, of course, like, there's just the difference between the American approach to that, the Godzilla myth and the Japanese one. So they stay true to the look of Godzilla, which is like, you know, a guy in a suit is the... The structure of the creature, whereas like America sort of like took it and adapted it into, I don't know, I guess a more like reptilian thing, after, especially when the first new iteration of Godzilla came out, like after Jurassic Park, it had to be more like T-Rex-ish.
1: Yeah, he's like skinny. And actually it's a it's a she, I guess, because she lays a bunch of eggs at the end oh, of that right. one. But I remember really insisting that my parents make me, like let me leave a Girl Scout meeting early so that I could see that movie when I was like eight, probably when it came out. It wasn't good. Even then, I knew it wasn't good. But yeah, like that design was really Americanized and very disappointing. So I'm glad he's a lot chunkier now again.
0: Yeah, it's 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 just better that way. Like the other look doesn't age well. In fact, thinking of it, and we're going to get to this one next, the the look of the head of that Godzilla is kind of Pete's dragon-ish. He's got like that big chin. And that's the uh, the next exhibitor here is Pete's dragon. Elliot is the name of the dragon. Do you remember this movie?
1: I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think I ever saw this movie.
0: They remade it recently, but I, there's I the original. I saw the
1: remake. I watched it when I was visiting home again with my dad. Uh, and I thought it was like cute. It was a cute movie for, you know, what, you know, the live action remake sort of thing. Um, but I don't think I ever saw the original anime. version. I know him. He's like a big, kind of round boy. And you're right. He has that like. What kind of jaw is that? I don't even know, but it's like just this big round, kind of like genie jaw. It's like a
0: ladle. Yeah. He has
1: that and he has like some pink hair going on, which is really nice.
0: Yeah, he's cute. He's friendly. And it, um, you know, it's in the category of like the Mary Poppins era of uh, Disney where it's live action with cell art on top of it, which is a fun space.
1: Yeah, I'm going to have to make a point of watching this my own research
0: okay so uh pete or elliot is actually going to sit in the stands with pete because he's a bit more uh domesticated like he he just doesn't really belong in the rink and now we've got everybody's best friend Falcor, flying on in destroying
1: bullies everywhere <laughs> scaring the pants off of every 80s bully
0: okay Falcor, what needs to be said about Falcor? he's kind of pink he, he's got soft scales and like big soft eyes
1: he's super cute all good dogs look like Falkor.
0: Yeah, it's true.
1: Just something to think about. He has like a beautiful pearlescence to him as well. Like something that you only notice yeah. a few times in the movie. He's like laying down and he's got the like, just like shiny pearl scales and he's fun. And I love him. That's all.
0: Agreed. I, th- I think uh, you you brought up that look, that kind of sheen last week when we were sorting out the ribbons and you assigned it to like the best ribbon for the unicorn. Yes. And I think to me, that's that's something from 80s aesthetic that has yet to really be mined for this like new era of just kind of embracing, embracing the nonsense of 80s stuff. Like even Marvel is like really willing now to just go like all out with like the mysticism and strangeness of costumes and like bright colors. But we're not yet seeing that. That pearl, pinkish, shiny, glittery... I'm glad
1: you mentioned this really quickly and incredibly relevantly to what you're saying. Because um, I don't know how much you've looked into this. We listeners, we, Ira and I were chatting about this briefly before we started recording. But the Disney movie, Ryan the Last Dragon, that just came out, the dragon designs in that movie are screaming to me that, like, 80s, 90s... Honestly, to me, it reminded me a lot of the My Little Ponies from that time period. Because uh, obviously the last dragon is in it, but you see at times like other dragons, you know, from hence or post or whatever. And they're all like different color, like multicolored, like very vibrant colors. And they have this like outrageous hair. Like that's another thing that's very, they have these just like huge like poofs of hair and it's just like, wow, I haven't seen that in so long. And, I mean, they have the big eyes and, like, exaggerated eyelashes and everything. And all I was like, where has this been? It was so weird because I, I don't think I'd realize how long we've gone in yeah. media without that. Like, I, I feel like if I was a kid when this movie came out, I'd be like, where are the 80, like, dragon toys that I can now buy that, are, like, that have this design? Yeah, it was just like that. And it was nice on it. Maybe that's just nostalgia speaking. But I was like, I really want more of this. I want more like, cute, multicolored animal, like mascot creatures that I can think about, you know, like, which color one do I like the best? Like which one, blah, 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 like the big hair. And it just felt really fun to see that. Maybe it's coming back.
0: Well, it sounds like it's back. I mean, if if Disney is doing it, if it's if if it's the flagship yeah, we'll Disney see. character of late winter. We'll
1: see about the merch.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, I feel like that movie's not doing amazing. Uh, maybe it'll get a revival. I don't know how these things just disappear instantly because they're already like direct to your streaming. Yeah.
1: It's like, are they going to do theatrical re-releases? Like, oh, it's very. Who knows.
0: Yeah, well, we'll get, we'll get back to that movie eventually, but let's continue with our exhibitors here. So, Falcor, moving aside, and now a much smaller dragon, we have Mishu from Milan.
1: Oh, I love this lad. He was so great. I was pretty young when that movie came out, too. I want to say it was, like, 97 or 98. And uh, I had, surprising no one, I had, like, a stuffed Mushu that, like, if you hit it, it would say his iconic lines from the movies. Like a really 90s toy to have. But I guess I did like Mushu. I thought his design was really good. He was funny, I guess. I don't know. I can't see him with an adult brain. So like, I don't know if that's actually true or not. But I enjoyed him in it. And I do now.
0: Yeah. And so far, I was just kind of looking over our list. He's Well, he's the first kind of like Asian dragon we've looked at here. So he's like a Chinese dragon and just has a different content. Well, I mean, that's not... Ghidorah, King Ghidorah, I don't know what he represents other than like a nuclear cautionary tale or something.
1: He's also an alien, specifically. In most iterations, yeah, he's not even from Earth.
0: Yeah, so he doesn't even count. But whereas Mushu is more, he's kind of like an underworld dragon or something, right? Isn't he like a guardian?
1: Yeah, like an ancestral guardian. They have all the animals of the Zodiac, too, is a specific thing. And I guess the implication is they can, the ancestors can wake up any of these Zodiac animals and they're all tiny. <laughs> and then Mushu is the dragon one of those. I don't know. I will say yeah. like huge disappointment for me as a kid that he tries to wake up the great stone dragon and it doesn't happen. And then it never happens. Like that's the kind of stuff in movies that young me noticed and was really put out by. I was like, I can't wait to see the great stone dragon. He seems really cool. Never shows up.
0: Wow, you're right. I forgot about that. That is rare for that era of Disney. Like, usually they tie up everything.
1: Well, they do tie that one up, and I'll, I don't know how vividly you remember this. I Because I think he might have been murdered. Like, so the whole deal is that Mushu's supposed to wake him up. Oh, okay. Because he's made out of stone, and he, like, hits him with the gong, and the whole statue falls apart. (laughs) And Mushu definitely acts like it's a big deal. So I'm like, is he dead now? Like, did you kill him? It's not addressed. (laughs) <laughs> we'll never know
0: <laughs> okay uh, moving on Mushu's not taking up much space so there's plenty of room for Toothless from How to Train Your Dragon Toothless so okay if, if Falkor is the ideal dog what is Toothless? because I, I love Toothless I, I think Toothless is a masterpiece of character design But is Toothless, like, more cat-like? Yes. He's kind of in a weird space of dog-ish cat.
1: Yeah, I think he has a little bit of cat stuff, but, like, just from an aesthetic standpoint, there's a lot of cat going on there. I think it has maybe to do with the eyes and, like, his, um, the way his, like, kind of ear-like appendages sort of behave. It's not dog-like. It's not really, really cat-like either, but that's clearly where they were kind of pulling a lot of cat energy Mm -hmm. and maybe also too, where he's just like not fully tame. Like he's a little bit like, I don't want to do what you tell me sort of a thing. So that's a bit cat vibes.
0: Yeah. It's I I'm interested to talk more about that relationship because it's quite unique because they're like codependent toothless and hiccup, which is kind of a, a, a unique character pairing for like a kid's animated movie. They're just stuck together. And I think Hiccup wants to hang out with Toothless more than Toothless necessarily wants to hang out with Hiccup. hundred
1: percent. Yeah. <laughs> Toothless is the hot girl in that relationship, I guess, if you're looking at it from a questionable sort of standpoint.
0: Yes, <laughs> definitely. And then now a, a last minute contender. <laughs> we have Draco from Dragonheart. Are you going to do your Sean Connery impression?
1: No, I will never do that.
0: I wish I had a clip from... Hunt from Red October or something to play, but I don't have any of that stuff.
1: There's a lot of good lines from this movie. I feel like I learned a lot from Draco. Uh, it's certainly the role that I will always associate Sean Connery with the most, having really just not seen most of the other movies he's ever done.
0: For example, like James Bond or... Yeah, I never
1: saw James Bond with Sean Connery in it. I don't know. People like him. But I was just a lot more invested in Draco. He looked really real to me. Like, Mm -hmm. obviously I was a kid and watching it on VHS, whatever. But, like, they did a really good job, I feel like, on him for what he was. Like, he was huge. Like, this huge CG thing. Not a Mushu or, like, even a Toothless. Like, massive thing. And then he does a bunch of different stuff. He's, like, flying around and getting shot by spears and all of this stuff. And, like, there's a... When he and, um, whatever, the main night guy, Bowen... I remember the actor, um, but they're like fighting, they have like a sword fight and they're trying to kill each other, and he like gets stuck in his mouth with his sword and stuff, and like it just all was like this is so believable to me in a way that was probably impressive in the time. It's been a long time since I've actually seen this movie, so I doubt that it really holds up that well. Mm-hmm. But it feels like they put a lot of thought into it. He had wings that were like the appropriate size. That's something that people care about sometimes. That's something that'll come up in this episode, even the physicality of dragons, how they get around.
0: Right. I think if you're an illustrator that, um, spends a lot of time thinking about dragons, this, this, I wouldn't say this movie, but this dragon style marks a turning point for like, we must have believability in our dragons because before this, there's a little, they're playing a little fast and loose with the anatomy of how the limbs line up with the wings. Um, but Draco is definitely in the category of like, we, we need to feel like this is a real thing. And in a way, the movie we're talking about today is doing that, but in a, a totally with a totally different approach to design.
1: Yeah, I want to say too, not that it really matters, but like something about Draco's design that's interesting is like how they really clearly tried to find this happy place between like dragon snout face and like human lips. Right. And like, well, that sounds really horrifying. If you don't know what he looks like, like Google him, I guess. But like, he has this really short face and like, de- because he talks so much. So they wanted to make it something that could look real and not like, that's a weird mouth situation to be working with generally if they're, you know, if you're going to be talking in full English sentences. Uh, but I feel like they did a pretty good job for what it was.
0: Yeah, it works pretty well.
1: I'll note he has the appropriate amount of limbs, which is four legs and two wings and not bird situation with two wings and then two back legs, because that's stupid and wrong.
0: And now further, like the wings are kind of set where, where are they? They're like kind of behind the shoulder blade or something like where, where do you?
1: Yeah, pretty much really where they would go, I guess, if you had such a creature in existence.
0: Yeah, which we do.
1: Which is funny too. Now I'm looking, it's like most of these other dragons don't really have wings. I think Elliot does from Peach Dragon and like King Ghidorah has sort of like fans. He just kind of flies like in a straight vertical sort of a situation. He has wings in the the modern versions, but like in a lot of his conceptions, he has like quote unquote wings and like nothing really super substantial.
0: They just make him look grand. Um, and Elliot's wings are purely decorative, I, I think. I mean, some of these dragons just fly anyway. Like, they don't, they don't need the wings.
1: Right. That's, like, something you get into a lot. Like, Falkor just flies, I guess, on the power of wishes or something. Yeah,
0: imagination.
1: I don't begrudge him that. Toothless, another classic dragon situation. Like, a good dragon design.
0: Right, exactly. I, that's why I was, I was getting at there. Like, I think somewhere in the mid-90s we decided that, um, I guess just movie studios need, decided they were going to take dragons a little more seriously when they brought them into storytelling and they Thank just God. got slightly more realistic. And I don't know if that's part of like the revival of Dungeons & Dragons because to me when I think of a dragon from Dungeons & Dragons, he's kind of a, a Draco dragon. Yeah.
1: And I do, I think that was a blending sort of the Dragonheart dragon was leaning really on the, it's all medieval, like very much that kind of, and I don't know, I wish I knew off the top of my head, which movie came out where they were like, all right, it's going to be like, you know, we're going to make it anatomically realistic. So it has like bird wings, like arm, like wing arms, and then two back legs. And I'm like, why? How is that anything? The one, I know I'm being like really petty and dumb about this, but like, it bothers me that the Harry Potter dragons in the movies are that situation where they have like four limbs that are wings and then the back legs and in the book they specifically don't have that situation i'm like why would you change it Hmm. like in the book they've got four legs and wings so like what is the deal and it's just like an art direction thing i guess but like i don't really it feels weird to take like what is explicitly the most magical type of animal and try to make it like really real (laughs)
0: Yeah, I was trying to think so it's the are you th- talking about the dragon that's in um whatever the the vault is I can't remember the the names of Harry Potter stuff. The ridgeback, it's like the Norwegian ridgeback, isn't that like kind of bat a bat like one? I don't know.
1: I you could be right. I honestly don't know, but I am thinking specifically of the one that shows up in the Goblet of Fire because when I was a kid, I don't really care about Harry Potter stuff now in any form. But when I was a kid that was my favorite book and the movie is terrible. But the like the dragon in the book is explicitly described cuz it's in there a bunch, you know, that's like a big set piece or whatever. And then in the movie that same dragon is like just batting it up and I'm like as a huge bat fan, you're doing both creatures a great disservice.
0: Okay. Well, that neither uh no Harry Potter dragons are in our exhibition today unfortunately or fortunately depending on your feelings about harry potter but caitlin it's now time to take your ribbons for best companion most rude and most believable slash best and assign them to the dragons
1: best companion is obviously oh no it's not obvious (laughs) Uh, because i was gonna say i really do think best companion might be falcor yeah. Oh, and it was to me is a toss up between Falcor and Toothless because Toothless is obviously such a bro. But Falcor's whole deal, like, I don't know. I say best companion, I guess, because Falcor was always like, hi, I'm here for you. <laughs> like, right. He's like a safe, warm presence that, like, is wise and would back you up in a fight. And, like, I think Toothless, maybe, Toothless, you also can't talk. Like, he's from a universe where the dragons don't speak the mm-hmm. human language so there is that barrier and a lot of that relationship is more of like them building the relationship than him just be i don't know if i could be friends with toothless i don't know if he would be into that but i feel like Falcor would be like hey having a tough time at school lately <laughs> do you need me to eat some of your friends yes
0: yes Falcor also kind of exists in your like he he sprung from your imagination in a way so he's he's kind of like, he's just definitively yours. Like, know what? Falcor is nobody else's friend but yours, you know? So he's kind of the best friend you could possibly have.
1: Where is my Falkor? Hmm.
0: You'll meet him someday. Um, all right. So most rude.
1: The most rude on this list is kind of tough. And I feel like I'm going to have to go with King Ghidorah probably for the most rude dragon. Mm-hmm. I'm basing a lot of this, honestly, over his personality in specifically Godzilla: King of the Monsters, mm-hmm. which I I gather you haven't seen. I've seen it. You did. You saw that one? Okay. Yeah. Um, I he's feel he is very sassy in that, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of cool. Uh, I like that. His all of his three heads have like distinct personalities. I feel like the artists are really working overtime to make this work. Because uh, I don't know.
0: He takes control of, well, he is the king of the monsters. and yes. I mean, he's rude simply because he just, he shows up and he just runs the show. Like he just awakens all these yeah, arrogant. retired monsters. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Very arrogant. Thinks he can step to Godzilla. Turns out Godzilla is the real king of the monsters, uh, which I totally get, even though I think Ghidorah is a cooler design. Yeah. I mean, he's not even from here, so.
0: Yeah, technically he's he's a space dragon. The Rutherford County Fair doesn't, doesn't care about that stuff.
1: Doesn't matter. I'm going to give a... Because I didn't mention him earlier, and I, I just somehow didn't think about him until like five minutes ago. But I, I would like to honorably mention Spyro the Dragon on this list. I don't know if you're particularly sure, familiar. Spyro was really formative for me. It was my first console video game that I ever had. And he was quite um, 90s rude Like a lot of his, those games are like very PG or like G rated, but he would just be like, I don't have time for old people. Like that was like a lot of his kind of deal.
0: Right. Yeah. So
1: I feel like if you're going by one of the most pure definitions of rude, there are multiple times in the first game where you free, you go through this whole game freeing dragons that have been like frozen in crystal. And if he comes across like a clearly elderly one, he always bails like immediately because they're, they're always like. I need to tell you a story about when I'm young. And he's like, bye, like, peace. <laughs> it's just a very 90s conception of what it means to be rude. So Spyro, may in the video game World of Dragons, but here in film and cinema, it's going to be King Ghidorah.
0: Oh, yeah. And Spyro can be his, like, little sidekick. Spyro actually loves that you didn't even consider him because... He's just too cool for this list anyway.
1: He is too cool for that. That is accurate.
0: All right. Now Now comes the big uh, pearlescent scaled ribbon for most believable.
1: Most believable dragon. I feel like everybody can probably see this coming, but I actually think Draco is most believable. Oh, wow. Okay. I do. And oh. like, so a lot of that has to do with what we were saying about him being like, uh, re- like they tried really hard to make him feel real in the, like, rules of the world. Mm-hmm. But also because it's, like, a super medieval setting. I was like, this is kind of, like, what medieval people would want a dragon to be if they conceived of dragons as good, which they don't normally. Yeah. Um, but he's very, like, selfless and giving and, like, the whole conflict from that movie is that he, like, split his heart in half and gave half of his heart to this, like, crappy human guy to keep him from dying because he's the prince and then he turns out to be, like, super lame and... Like, not a good guy, so they kill him at the end. Whatever, spoiler. Definitely watch it. And then he goes to Dragon Heaven. And then that's also where um, the Constellation, which I think is also maybe called Draco. Mm-hmm. Google, Google. Yes. Um, I guess that's where dragons go when they die, and then it makes a perfect shape of, like, the design of the dragon. <laughs> it's just a lot of myth- rich mythology here that I'm like, this is what people think of. As dragon a lot, like baseline. I think Toothless is very believable, but he's also like very much of the world that he is a part of, which is like a fake. And then like Dragonheart is ostensibly set in medieval England or whatever.
0: Right. You could picture Draco on like a tapestry or something.
1: Yeah. Like you could buy that that was, you could buy that he was based off of some myth that was actually real. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's true, but but maybe.
0: Yeah, we'll never know. He's gone to the stars now. we can't even ask him.
1: I know he's so dead right now, so I appreciate him taking time out of his busy retirement to come down to the fair. And
0: yeah, and I appreciate you taking time to stop by and d- judge our uh, dragon competition here at the 21st annual Rutherford County Fair Livestock show. <laughs> That fanfare, it's, it's, like truly... it's the right length of time. It's like a little too long.
1: That's good. <laughs> no, it's working. I just really, I would. there's nowhere I would rather be. Genuinely. Well,
0: Dragon, Dragon Talk continues here as we get into The Flight of Dragons, a 1982 film by the Rankin and Bass Animated Entertainment Corporation featuring the tagline, this is in all caps.
1: This is a really good tagline. Brace yourself.
0: A wondrous tale of action and suspense, damsels and ogres, dungeons and dragons, copyrighted, questing knights and evil warlocks, period. I can't
1: believe it has dungeons and dragons in it. <laughs> I don't know if there's a dungeon in this movie.
0: Uh, no, they probably cut to one quickly just to you know say it's in there. I mean, I guess this last week we got a little into um, the the style of storytelling that The Last Unicorn takes. And it is kind of a a quest in the fashion of Dungeons & Dragons. So this one, it's like they're just going all in on that. They're like, well, here's your team and everybody's got a special skill. And, you know, there's four color-coded wizards and we're going to go to each of these realms. It promises all the the tropes. And then you get them.
1: Yeah, it's incredibly meta in that way too which is not a word i like to throw around lightly but like it even has like a nerd from our world as like a main character it just feels like yeah y'all play dungeons and dragons probably
0: right so just like a quick synopsis here as we get into conception so we've got this harmonious realm of magic corrupted by a master of black magic black magic is the the bad one and it's up to a uh like this Bostonian, basically, who just loves loitering around a pawn shop. It's up to him to save everybody. Young Peter Dickinson,
1: a man of science, (laughs) a man of science who like really just wants to sell this board game he made about dragons.
0: Right, and his name is is Peter Dickinson, who uh, now. When, when we were putting this little list together of movies to do, this was the one that right off the bat, you're like, no one has seen this movie. I don't know anyone who has seen this. This is you talking. You said that to me. And I agreed.
1: True. That I will verify that that did in fact And uh, I
0: course. agreed that no one had ever seen this movie. It doesn't exist. And I'm surprised now watching it because I think it's uh, quite good. It's better than I expected. But on top of that, the movie is partially based on Maybe a top five most important book in my life. Now that I think about it, "The Flight of Dragons" by Peter Dickinson, and I I recently bought my first copy of this book. But I would go to the library and sit on the floor in the kind of the uh, the big picture book section of the library and just look at this book over and over again because it does this. It does one of those magical things that some books do, where when you go to pick up the book you're kind of transported to a place where this story is real. And it's it's not the same as with literature, where you start to read and you're immersed in the world. This book is designed to feel like, what if there was a world where people believed in dragons and this was sort of like the textbook on how to get a basic understanding of how they function? And the book kind of plays out that way, like it's written in that style. So uh, it really changed probably for the worse in a lot of ways, how I deal with storytelling and how I think about storytelling because of its use of this um, like kind of textbook style formatting and language in something that's totally like pseudoscience. It's a great book. And I have a, now you, this is a book you've never seen in your life, right, Caitlin? Even though I think it's very much up your alley.
1: Not that I have any memory of. I don't, I did not which is funny. So I've forgotten a lot about this movie, so it's kind of fun to revisit it. They even mentioned this book in the movie <laughs> as as the character. Yeah, it
0: shows up at the end. It's <laughs> yeah. written,
1: and he hasn't even finished it yet, and it still shows up in this movie somehow, briefly. I'd totally forgotten about that and, like, had no idea that it was a real thing. And it absolutely would have been my jam as a kid, but I... Presumably we did not encounter it. Well,
0: I think I was uh, reading up a little about the book and I think it's kind of an interesting story about how it came to be because a lot of this era of fantasy art and culture, it's so important to us, but then sometimes it eludes us as to like why it is the way it is sometimes, especially with some of this Rankin and Bass stuff. We're like, oh, interesting aesthetic choice to do the, you know, the busty tree or, you know, all these like little moves that we just don't get. So I thought it would be fun to just kind of get a little more enlightened into the backstory with this book. So it's by Peter Dickinson, who you will learn more about in the film. He was a Cambridge University professor, so quite smart, but also an author and poet. And he got a reputation after this book and maybe a little before for doing kind of like kids fantasy and also does like detective stories. And then the illustrator of this book is Wayne Anderson. So Wayne Anderson wow. did about a hundred drawings for this book. So it, it is packed with art and it's got a bit of a, a Celtic flair to it. There's a lot of like Celtic knotwork and the decorative elements. So it kind of evokes a bit of that uh, illuminated manuscript feeling to just make you feel like you're holding an old book.
1: I got to get this
0: book. You got to get it. And I I'd, I'd call this a cult classic book because it's really odd. Like it doesn't really, there are things like it, um, I'm sure like, did you have, you know, I'll ask you this because this is one of my favorites in this category, but did you encounter any of these like kind of fantasy, you know, biographies of a, you know, a creature index or something like that? I can think of a couple more that I remember seeing, but I was a little too old to get into them. Yeah. Like I feel like there was a dragonology book.
1: Oh, is that what it was?
0: It had a red cover with like a a circle in the middle.
1: We, yeah, this isn't the one, I have talked to you a couple times about one that I can remember, and I can never think of, uh, what it was called, like, I can picture the content, and it was all about dragons, I don't think this was the same book, but I do remember seeing the Dragonology book, it has a pretty iconic cover, um, if you google it and it almost looks like maybe it was part of a series at some point now that i'm open or maybe there's just been a bunch of editions of it yeah but we had one in particular that was about dragons and it was like really i wouldn't even i guess a lot of these aren't like standard book format but like it was very light on text and it did it was kind of like each spread was basically like a huge illustration of some kind of specific type of dragon that definitely exists like in this book i remember there was one that was basically like a take on dragonflies. So they were really small and they had like long skinny tongues that like they would like drink nectar out of flowers kind of a thing. Uh, and then it would have some basic information like, oh, they're like found in this part of the world, whatever, and that kind of stuff. And we loved that book. And there, uh, there have to be more out there. That's really the one that comes to mind for me. And I really wish I could remember what it was.
0: Yeah. And I, I would say they're all... Based on this, and I don't—I wouldn't say this is the first incarnation of this type of book, but it does come from a very, like, pure place. Where Peter Dickinson, his story goes, he was on a train looking at the full collection of uh, Earthsea books, like the first three books, and they're like omnibus format. And there's a great illustration on the front of that, and it had a dragon. And he started like thinking about the kind of form of the body, like the big bulky body and how it had really stubby wings and, and thinking about like, well, how would that dragon work? And he started designing what he intended to just have as a little pamphlet of like the biology of a dragon, mostly in the kind of like earth-sea realm. So this was going to be something he could like give to his nephews and nieces at Christmas as just a little like fun flavor text for some books that they were reading. And now... His agent gets a hold of this and he's like, oh, this is this is a goddamn book. Like we can sell this idea. So somebody picks it up and it ends up getting a little more ambitious because they assign Wayne Anderson to illustrate it, but it isn't enough text to really fill out a book. So he starts writing additional chapters. So you have um, little curiosity chapters on like Chinese dragons. And then there's a chapter on Beowulf and there's a whole lot of like literary references. So anytime like Tolkien mentions a dragon, we get little excerpts of that text in here. So unlike some of the books that came after this one, this one I think is a little more pure and like deeply knowledgeable about fantasy storytelling, especially of like the 60s and 70s. Whereas I feel like later, the ones that I would pick up, they were more just um, fun kids' books. Like this book has a lot of text and it's pretty uh, scientific I guess isn't quite the word, but it's very verbose in how it breaks down and describes these things. And it's not dry. It's very fun and flavorful. But a kid today wouldn't pick up this book and be enthralled because of uh, it's, it's not like it's alienating, but it's very uh, deep and knowledgeable about its source material, which I think makes it kind of cool and special because it's from a person who like clearly loved these books and just wanted yeah. to think about them all the time.
1: <laughs> that much is apparent.
0: Yeah, so that that's my kind of little rant on this uh, very special book. And a lot of the questions the book poses we'll get into in the plot of the movie because they, um, they're they just jammed right in the middle of this adventure story. As we...
1: It is kind of <laughs> hilarious, yeah.
0: So the, this book comes out, it's a hit, and it ends up in the hands of Rankin and Bass right away. And they just, maybe this says something about the Rankin and Bass uh, choice making at this stage. But they just grabbed it without even reading it or knowing anything about it. They just loved the concept. And then later they realized, oh, wait, there's no plot in this. And that's when they decide to pair this story with the dragon and the George, which is where the sort of like hero's journey archetype narrative in this movie comes from. So it's just, I think that whole conceptual aspect of this movie, like really endeared it to me as someone who's never seen it before. Um, I just love the idea of like kind of jamming two books together to make a new story. That's like something you don't really see a lot in adaptation.
1: Yeah. I have a lot of like meandering thoughts about all of this kind of by just by the nature of that, I guess it's like such a weird thing. And like we touched on this a little bit when we were talking about last unicorn in the last episode, And I was kind of thinking like some of the storytelling issues that you were bringing up about that movie, I feel like, I felt like for The Last Unicorn, a lot of those were more just deliberate choices on like what they were just choosing to explore and pay attention to. And so other things were like kind of falling by the wayside. And this movie, I don't, I feel like Flight of Dragons to me feels like a TV show, which is kind of. Like, it's a movie. It's surprisingly long. I want to say it's, like, almost two hours, like, a full mm-hmm. amount. And uh, But, like, it's really episodic to the point that I could easily have seen this be, like, one or two full seasons of a kid's show. And it also, you can see hints of this in The Last Unicorn. But in this movie especially, I can, like, look at this and just know instinctively that the animators who worked on this were the people who made Thundercats. Which is true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I can really, really see that in this. And it has a little bit of, I have no idea what studios worked on He-Man, but it even has some of that to me, just all of that kind of, uh, this movie has Sakuga, (laughs) the sacred concept we've (laughs) talked about where the budget clearly went to some specific shots (laughs) so they could really like stretch it for the rest of the time. Like there's some shots in this movie where I'm like, oh, this is where the money was. And then, you know. Um, but there's a lot of surprisingly good and bad animation in this, too. It's just a little... It's all over the place. And um, so that's what makes me wonder, like, whether this the base story of The Last Unicorn is your cup of tea or not. Like, you know, it was a book first and, like, a novel and all this. It wasn't, as Flight of Dragons was, these two stories that are kind of, like, mishmash together. And it mm-hmm. does make me wonder, like who is this movie made for? Like what was the audience or like, why did they make it? And I mean, another thing is that the last unicorn was a theatrical release and this wasn't, this was like straight to video. Uh, And I, something, I guess I'm just curious to get your thoughts on and to talk about in general is like, what does that mean to be like a made for direct to video instead of being a theatrical movie? Like how does that affect it? And I'm also just – I don't have an answer for this, but I'm like, why are these made? Like, why – how do you decide <laughs> to, to make a story that you know isn't good enough to be a theatrical production, but that you're into enough to make, like, a two-hour direct-to-VHS movie? Like, what is the thought process behind that? I don't know, but it is curious.
0: Yeah. I was trying to think more about – um what I, I I feel like with this sort of stuff, especially being an age where I'm kind of not so immersed, right? Like you and I are both thinking about like choices we would make if we were in charge of the story or like what the, you know, the sweat box was when they were conceiving of this idea, like all that behind the scenes stuff, like appeals on a really big level and like looms large whenever we engage with these things now. So I was thinking about that and with, Some of these Rankin and Basque ones, I find it really hard to believe that there were um, moments behind the scenes, like we talked about in The Rats of Nim, where Don Bluth was sitting down with the animator and talking about uh, Miss Brisby looking at the book for the first time and realizing that this is the story of her husband. And also she's like barely literate. So maybe it's one of her first reading experiences and really diving Diving exceptionally deep, not just, like, getting the gist of their emotional state, but, like, finding out the specific state of that character in that moment, which is more than just saying, like, oh, they're embarrassed or confident or happy or sad, which we get a lot of, like, facial expressions in Rankin and Basque, but rarely does it, like, pose those questions in the conceptual stage of like, oh, they were like really digging into what does it mean for this character to feel that way? And to me, that's what separates some of these like made for TV from like these more important films. And I think it comes down to budget, like being able to maybe sit there long enough and think that hard about something without running out of money. And also maybe Rankin and Basque didn't ask those sort of questions of themselves or their animation team, because I just don't see a lot of that. Like, Oh wow. I'm really getting a true sense of this character in, in the way that we do with um like just some of these bigger, you know, theatrical releases. So I don't know if that answers that question, but um
1: yeah, I'm sure that's part of it. I have more to say on that, but I think I'll save it for the, the back half where all the juices.
0: Now, Something really important that I realized in this movie, and this—I don't want to throw this in the plot conversation because it's going to derail it. There's a line in this movie that just stuck out to me, and let's see uh, if you think this is true or not. A character says, "Who could ponder equations when he had the chance to imagine dragons?" Now, is that the origin of the band Imagine Dragons?
1: I thought that too at this. I thought that too, and I was rewatching it, and I was like, oh my God, is it? Honestly, I don't know. I don't want to give them that much credit.
0: Yeah, like, are they that cool? I mean, I'm sure they're. There's cool no way, right? Enough. But it just. Did that line stand out to me because there is a band called Imagine Dragons? Or does that line jump out in one of those ways where it's like, stay gold, pony boy, or like one of those phrases that people just like latch onto?
1: I mean, maybe both, because honestly, I feel like that should be a tagline for this. It's like. It kind of sums up a lot of the the central energy of it,
0: yeah, agreed.
1: Now, if I ever meet Imagine dragons, I'll ask them, but like I'll also kick them in the shin and run away. so <laughs> I'm just kidding i but I don't not really into imagine dragons, so I can't imagine in what situation we would be like socially together.
0: Right. You can't imagine those dragons, but you can't imagine these dragons.
1: Yeah, imagine these dragons, y'all Boom.
0: Flight of dragons, soar in the purple light, in the sky, or in my
1: mind. We're gathered here today to talk about Flight of Dragons, which is great. A movie that you hadn't seen before and that I had only in my wee years of childhood. Mm-hmm. The central story follows our hero, Peter Dickinson, who is an average dude, I would say, I don't know, maybe in his like early 30s, maybe from Boston in the 20th century. So like our time. Uh, and then also, I guess like 100 years prior to that in magic time. Uh, The green wizard, Carolinus, and his dragons, and his hot niece, I think. Is it his niece or his daughter? His ward, Princess Melathon. So these are our major players on the side of good. And as you might have guessed from the general content, it's basically a classic quest movie. And it also has a pretty classic Tales All This Time structure where Carolinus, being the green wizard... I sort of noticed that uh, magic is waning in the world and men of science are kind of squishing it out somehow. Uh, We find out that this is the case because a bunch of fairies get like squished by by a water wheel at the beginning. And he's like, well, this just won't do like you guys need to be more careful with your science. And he tries to banish the water wheel with his magic and it fizzles out into nothing and like nothing happens. And he gets made fun of by the the townspeople. And he's like, I got to do something about this. So I'm going to call my brothers, the other wizards. We're going to have a council. Classic fantasy situation. And we're going to get to the bottom of this. So we have the blue wizard, Solarius, who is kind of like the water in the heavens wizard. We have a golden wizard with Lo Zhao, who is, I think, air. He's always like a light and air element sort of dude. And then the red wizard, Omadon, who is really cool and was voiced by James Earl Jones spectacularly, who is the red wizard, but I guess is the black magic guy. So he's the one who is just very transparently evil. <laughs> Uh, So they all gather together and they have a consultation uh, in which Omadon is basically like, I'm going to kill all of the like non-magic people and I'm going to take over the world. Um, Great talk, everybody. I'm the bad guy. And you'll never be able to take my power away that's stored in my crown. (laughs) (laughs) And he has a little bit of a PowerPoint moment where his crown gets really big and it's just like a crown just like floating there and nothing else. To make it really obvious what we are questing to accomplish. Uh, so Carolinas is like, okay, well, this is very obvious. You know, you two are still here, the Blue Wizard and the Gold Wizard. Like, we need to figure out what we're going to do. So I'm going to consult Antiquity, who obviously is my boss. We all agree that Antiquity is the thing we consult in times of need. So he does this. And Antiquity, it turns out to be this like giant silver oak tree, I guess, that is absolutely willing to yell at you. <laughs> if you're if you are too sassy, and he says, "You know, look into the future, there's where your hero is, like you need to go on a quest, you need to have this night hero, and you need to like take care of this stuff so via the powers of his green magic, Carolinas does summon Peter to this time and plane, uh and they go on a many varied quest." Other casts of characters like join us along the way. We have an actual knight, Sir Orin, makes an appearance, joins the group. There's like a, a female archer named Danielle, like a human lady archer named Danielle shows up, and a little elf named Giles. Uh, and then there's also a wolf, a talking wolf, who his name escapes me at the moment. But they form this entire Molly crew over the course of this movie. Uh, And in spectacular battle, culminating in, I guess, the superiority of logic and reason over magic is what actually wins the day. Um, But suffice to say, they do conquer Omadon by doing so. Peter, who has denied all magic in order to win by using the brute force of science and reason is permanently booted back to his time. Um, but he does get the girl at the end. So the uh, the princess, the arbitrary princess, I guess. I don't know what she's princess of. Carolinus brings her into the 20th century so that they can live out their days together. So that's quite lovely. And uh, that, in a nutshell, is the movie. I'm sure we'll get into a lot of their deeds of Daring Do in our discussion, uh, because a lot of the actual body of the film are these kind of episodic events that are happening, uh, as we mentioned earlier, very Dungeons Dragons-esque.
0: Right. And I was also um, reminded of the game Gauntlet, just the way the team comes together where you have, like, different scales of figures. You have, like, the sharpshooter. You have the kind of in-between-everything knight. And then you've got, like, I don't know, the cool wolf that's like a little feral I like that wolf. This is all very... I
1: love the wolf. This is all
0: very never Indian story-ish. I guess these are just the things people wanted in their fantasy stories these days in 82.
1: And it definitely is D&D-esque. Like, it's really not super clear what Peter's role would be. Um, I mean, it has big, like, self-insert energy. (laughs) Like down to the fact that he literally is the author of the actual book. And that book shows up in this movie too. And he wrote it. So I don't know. Uh, And he's from Boston.
0: (laughs) Right. Okay. So let's talk about Peter here for a minute. I mean, we're going to get into the song, but let's just talk about Peter because you brought it up. So Peter, I don't want to turn this into like a uh, creative pep talk episode, but he's got too many projects going on because he's like a teacher he's broke he's working on this board game but he's like i can't finish the game cuz i'm writing a book he needs to just settle on one project and fulfill fulfill that goal
1: yeah if you're a peter <laughs> out there if you've watched flight of dragons and you find yourself identifying with peter like you need to slow down <laughs> and i get it everybody knows a peter though right yeah. like his opening scene is he's in this pawn shop and he's playing a board game of his own creation um, which the production values of it look really high for something that just some random guy made Yeah, the figurines a prototype are. Version. They're
0: great figures.
1: Yeah, like beautifully carved figurines that just happen to be Carolinas, the other wizards, and even one of the dragons. Uh, and he's pitching it to this pawn shop owner. So I don't know if the implication is that, like, he's also socially friends with the pawn shop owner and, like, It has never once occurred to me to go into a pawn shop and try to pitch the dude behind the counter business ideas, but he's like, just a few thousand dollars, that's all we need to to really put this into production. And the pawn shop guy is like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Why would I do that?
0: This is exactly one of those Rankin and Bass things that I'm like, it's so close that I don't want to complain about it, but it's like... Why that character? Why that scene as a way to introduce this character? It's like, I wouldn't call it boring, but it's a little more exposition-y than if you approached it in a, a different way. I don't know. Maybe he could have been playing the game with his friends. I, I actually don't have a better solution, so I should shut up. But it's it's like you said, it's <laughs> just odd.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I, this might be like the harshest like episode for me oh. because i really try not to make definitive statements about anybody's motivations or anything like that or i try to like find interpretations of to me that make sense of why something is this way or that way this movie the story of this movie reads to me like somebody who like loves storytelling and like loves fantasy and loves stories but like is not a storyteller so it's like If you don't know how to write or have not written before, but you know what you love and you know what you think is fun, Mm -hmm. this might be something that you would sit down and write. Because in your mind, it's always more exciting, which I think is why for, I mean, maybe any creative endeavor, it's like getting it out on paper, whatever it is, is always different than like what it is in your mind. Yeah. And so that's what this is. It's on paper. (laughs) I don't know if anyone like edited it
0: really. Like, all right, story su- stuff aside, do you think this movie looks a little better? To m- Maybe I'm just saying that I think, for some reason, this movie looks a little better than The Last Unicorn.
1: Yeah, I, I do kind of agree with you, which, like, feels weird to say, especially considering, as we've mentioned a million times, like, Last Unicorn was theatrical. This was not. But I also feel like the style of this movie is a lot more in what we can kind of safely say is the wheelhouse of the studio because they're both kind of circling the same sort of thing i actually feel like so the last unicorn came from like a story that a lot of people genuinely love like this actual book and like this author all of that stuff um there was more like love in it in that regard and this one is very like D and D generic designs again. Like the Thundercats, energy in this is very apparent, mm. and it just it feels to me like it was kind of playing to their strengths. Where in the Last Unicorn, uh, the characters are all kind of tropey still to some degree, but like like the design of like Schmendrick the wizard is very specific. It doesn't like he's got this weird like little patchwork hat and all of this stuff. The characters feel like a little bit more thought and originality went into the designs and just maybe the execution wasn't as solid. And then this one is like the green wizard. Like, it's like they all have like wizard traits. Yeah. And then dragons and they're all just these iterations of similar kind of designs. And it just, it feels like maybe this movie was a little bit easier to work with those designs than something like The Last Unicorn, where I feel like they were trying to pursue all these different art styles in the same thing. And maybe that was a little more challenging. Yeah, that
0: makes sense. The way they talk about storytelling in this and the way the characters kind of represent all these little archetypes, it's a lot more compartmentalized than The Last Unicorn, which is a screenplay by the author of the book. So the flavors of those characters, I feel like Are a little more in the flavor of the author, whereas this, I know we're taking the story from *The Dragon and the George*, a book I have not read. But on first glance, it looks like it's kind of just fodder for um, like paperback seventies fantasy stuff. Like it might almost be like a what's the book? the 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 Kid in King Arthur's Court, or whatever that original story is, where like the guy travels back in time to you know, uh, the days of Arthurian legend. I think it might be one of those type of books. And so therefore, maybe this story is easier to tell for them because they're like, yeah, we can color code it. And it's really locking in that kind of like 80s aesthetic. And also, I mean, so many of those 80s cartoons were running in parallel with the Toy companies that were making the toys. So it was like all this synergized package. You could kind of see this having toys made and they even go so far as to make like little miniatures in the board game. It's all very like tangible. And, you know, he's in pursuit of like making a board game. You know, he's got like, he wants to be part of an industry. He's not like writing a book or like, you know, he's not like, caught in whimsy he's like a practical man this peter dickinson you're
1: kind of touching on stuff that i like that's what i was getting at earlier about the like made for tv-ness or that it feels like a tv show Mm. and i guess i'm just gonna keep bringing up thundercats because again like all tv shows like that were made because they wanted to sell toys and so these toys exist so they make up stories and like adventures just to have content and so nobody is telling those stories from like a powerful, like, sit down, I want to tell you a story that's going to move you thing. They're trying to make something that is fun for kids to sit and watch. And so that's what this movie has, I feel like, that I don't think The Last Unicorn had that. I don't think it was like this. There's a reason it's a cult classic and not this, like, widespread mainstream thing. And I think it speaks to artists a lot for particular reasons. But it's like that book was written because the author wanted to write a story and was like, you know, trying to convey certain things. And then this is a lot more like Saturday morning, like stuff is happening because it's happening. And then there's that seed of like, like the, you know, Peter Dickinson as a human person in the real world is like, I like I love dragons and like fantasy and I want to write this. So there's like a seed of real genuine love and appreciation at the core of it. And that's where it's coming from, but it's not more than that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why it ends up coming out like a little strange to me. Like, it feels like really, again, there's like eight episodes of TV in this two-hour movie.
0: Yeah, it definitely fits in a time slot of like, here's the mid-Saturday morning, you know, fantasy cartoon with all your favorite character types. And you can just like half pay attention to it. And there's going to be like some pretty decent scenes. And as we get into it, I I think it almost ramps up. Like, I, I wonder if they animated this. In order, (laughs) in order of the story, because I think it kind of gets better as it goes, but we can get there.
1: It's that Sakuga, baby, and the money's kicking in.
0: Well, you know what's kicking in right now is the Don McLean song. I think we have to kind of talk about this track a little bit.
1: We do have to talk about the Don McLean song.
0: Okay. Now, of course, the first line in the song is Flight of Dragons. So there's no question about what we're watching, what it's about.
1: What's going on here?
0: Now, it's interesting because the phrase Flight of Dragons, title of the book, the book is about dragons and how they fly. But throughout this movie, Omadon says, he uses the phrase as like a collective noun, kind of, doesn't he? He's like a flight of dragons on ye or something. Like he's commenting that yes. on them as they move, which I thought was like kind of an interesting little like poetic twist. Because when you think of it that way, it's, it is quite lyrical. A flight of dragons. It's quite nice.
1: Yeah, like a flock of birds or like a mischief of birds. Yeah. Like a group of <laughs> dragons is a flight.
0: Is that true? Is that the official collective noun?
1: I don't think so, but I, I like it. I think that's what they were thinking maybe. Yeah, and
0: Don McLean like latched right onto it. He's like, this is how we... So we set the tone. Um, now, why are they flying in purple light? The first line says, flight of dragons soar in the purple light. And I don't have a question for every line in the song, but I, I just was wondering about that one.
1: You know why? Because it sounded good. Okay. Somebody thought that and they were like, oh yeah. And then we can paint this scene purple.
0: Purple is my favorite color.
1: Is it? Purple is a great color.
0: What's your favorite color? Red. Oh, okay.
1: It's the most powerful. It's always been my favorite color. I've never deviated. It's always been red.
0: Yeah, I think purple, I... I I know what
1: I want. I know what I like.
0: I think I had to grow into purple. (laughs) Maybe I liked um, blue when I was younger, but I aged into purple.
1: Yeah, purple is a color I feel like you would transition to as you get... I mean, you learn the basic ones early, right? Yeah, you gotta... You probably don't even know about purple until you reach a certain age. And then you're like, wait, (laughs) red and blue?
0: So... Now, now in the lyrics here, I guess we're sort of like setting up this idea because the, the first two lines go, the flight of dragons soar in the purple light in the sky or in my mind. The idea of dragons as a concept and as an entity seems to like emerge throughout this movie as to like they seem to mean a certain thing to Peter Dickinson. Even though he doesn't really like a dive into that, like why is he so caught up in fantasy? Like we don't really get his backstory outside of, you know, the adventure he has in this world. But I feel like this movie's kind of saying that, like in The Last Unicorn, a unicorn is symbolic of, you know, a loss of innocence or like a time where nature nature was more harmonious, like without the, the footprint of man. On everything. And this movie seems to be like trying to do something like that with dragons, right? Make them more symbolic.
1: Yeah, I was going to make the exact comparison. Okay, Because it does feel like... And I guess that's pretty common. Like pushing magic out of the world. There's some kind of like talisman of that. And if you do that, then there is no magic left anywhere. Yeah. Kind of... Yeah, dragons do seem to be the epitome of that here.
0: Now, we talked last episode... About your rich vocabulary, so I'm going to drop this phrase in because I'm actually not sure how to say this word. This is from the second verse. I don't know this word
1: either. I I know exactly what you're looking at, and I have no idea what that is. That is very poetic, though. A flight of dragons, heavenly argosies, like they're like they're ships that are laden with magic.
0: Yeah, and it's kind of weird because the book—it's sort of like a, you know, a, a Darwinian type of study of dragons. Like it, it puts them on this pedestal, like they're this like step in the evolutionary chain. That's quite beautiful, like remarkable for all these reasons, and it connects the whole picture. I think I like the, you know, something another thing that's kind of like endearing this movie to me is the way it observes dragons. And maybe one of my complaints about Rankin and Bass is that they move through things so quickly. Like, again, budget, whatever. I can still, like, have opinions about this stuff. But I just wish they would slow down and linger on some stuff. Like, things cut so quickly. Like, when a movement ends, the scene cuts right to the next thing before you've even, like, absorbed what was on screen. I feel like that happens a lot with both of these movies. Like, I want to enjoy some of this stuff. And this movie... I think because of the source material it's about looking and observing dragons it like really deeply there's a lot of like long shots of the dragons just flying and to me that's more meaningful in this than I do like the scene in the Last Unicorn where uh she walks through like different seasons. But it's really the only time we kind of get a shot like that. And, but it's not really done in the same sort of way like we're not it's not in a you know, beloved way she's kind of on this tired journey. Whereas in this we really get the majesty of the dragons in flight. Yeah. And I I don't know, I think that's And it
1: does happen a lot in a lot of different angles. Yeah.
0: There's more angles to this movie visually, I mean. Um
1: I don't think we noted this at the top, but just back up the Don McLean song. If that doesn't mean anything to you, it's the guy who did American Pie, the song. Yeah. Just FYI. I just wanted to point that out because probably if you said Don McLean to me, I wouldn't know who you're talking about right off the bat. And also because with The Last Unicorn having like a full fleet of songs by America and then getting the guy who sang American Pie to do the theme song for this movie. Like, what is that? That's such a specific flavor. Yeah. That these two movies are like fantasy stories that have like just American kind of folky sort of songwriters doing songs about magic. And I do... This one stands out to me a little bit more because like, is this something we don't have anymore? Like, it's, it's a grown man singing, like, I want to believe in magic again. I want to know where the dragons go. Like, where are they going? Do they live in my mind? And I'm like, what? Like, nobody says this stuff anymore. And it's just hard. It feels very much like from the 70s or the 80s that you would see something like this. And I, is that something we just don't have here in 2021? I think
0: there was just a deeper investment in um, imagination in that way. Like just the pursuit of flights of fancy, because you know, for example, this book is not really uh, geared towards kids. Like it's kind of dark, it's long. There's a lot of text. The illustrations are are really heavily detailed. They're not cartoony in any way. So you know, that's something I hadn't really thought about with that book. It appealed to me, but I don't know if it's definitely playing into a kids market. I think there just wasn't quite those breakdowns of things that in an earlier episode, I talked about like the emergence of like PG-13 in the, the early 80s. I think the 70s indulging fantasy and whimsy was still like something that was just maybe more okay for adults. Whereas maybe now, when I say it out loud, I know I'm wrong because adults indulge fantasy, but this sort of whimsy is out of fashion for grownups. Like, we have to bind it to, like, identity or, you know, certain things. We can't just, like, have a lyric that says, catch the wind, rise out of sight. Flight of dragons, pilots of fantasy, in the sky or in my mind. Like, it doesn't...
1: Damn, pilots of fantasy is a dope in <laughs> it. Don't imagine dragons. Be pilots of fantasy. Mmm. <laughs> Amazing. I totally agree with you though. I want to bring up, because like you're right. And I, I'm trying, I'm sitting here trying to think like what of like fantasy are adults into. And I think like, dare I say it's been a little more commodified because, like, for example, uh, you can't throw a stone without hitting an adult that's like way too into Harry Potter. I don't want to tell anybody that they're too into anything, but you know. Yeah. Uh, But it's like, it's a lot more about like identity than anything else. Like Harry Potter is like, here's four things you can pick which house you are or whatever. And then also here's like a bunch of merchandise associated with that thing. Like, I don't really feel like I talk to people who are like just enraptured by the the possibility of magic with Harry Potter. It's not. The, it's just not the same thing.
0: Right, yeah. It's like tied to a, a, a more grounded pursuit because they're in a school, like they're very specific ages. They're coming from... Yeah, it's know. a
1: lot more, I'm in this story. Maybe that's what it is. It's like, I could be in this story, like I'm Harry Potter or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then, well, you know, I'm not going to say that this way is better, but like Flight of Dragons, like, and even The Last Unicorn, like, it's not about... I don't think they cared as much about you being in the story or feeling like you were in the story. It was just like, here's some cool stuff that's happening. I don't think, I think maybe they could be like, ah, like the everyman, Peter Dickinson. Like people can identify with him. But like, even then it doesn't really feel like you're actually watching any of this through anybody's particular perspective. It's just supposed to be like, This is for fun. Like, neat stuff is happening.
0: Yeah. And there's so much stuff in this, and uh, maybe not as much The Last Unicorn, but this one seems a little more fraught with this idea that, um, you know, like, the reality is going to corrupt the magical world, right? So Carolinus, in in that opening scene where he's, uh, you know, worried about the swan and the fairies, he says... Take care, be careful. Your motors must not crowd out all our magic, which seems again like we have these lines that are just said more to the audience, <laughs> and I think that's part of like the in immersiveness like i'm I'm not engaging with this because I feel like you're talking to me watching this movie more than you're talking to the other characters, but we we get this like paranoia that human machinery and just like human evil i guess is it's just baked into us is going to destroy this magical world. So it seems like, well, the movie's about that. And that's kind of as far as they're going into it. They just kind of hint at that a couple different places. And then the plot goes forward because that's a good enough reason to have these characters go on a journey because we must not corrupt magic. And that's not enough of a reason anymore. (laughs) It's not enough of a reason for characters to go into a dangerous situation.
1: Yeah, like nobody's really interested in preserving that anymore. And well, and it's interesting too because, like, really, the end game of this movie is for them to make a separate dimension for all the magic to go, so they can just be permanently safe from like our 20th century shenanigans. So I guess that's something.
0: So I I got caught up on a scene really early in this movie because I didn't quite understand what it was going for, and you brought it up in the plot description. So I'm going to bring it up again because maybe you can help me understand. Sometimes the visual, the visual metaphors that Rankin and Basque settle on are, they often are not that well thought out. Like they just don't look great on screen. Like in The Last Unicorn, when the unicorn has the fake horn, it's just sort of like stuck on her head. And it looks, it's unclear what it is, unless you've heard the character describe what it is already, which I think is like bad visual design. So another weird moment weird for a different reason in this, is the swan is going down the river and it's carrying fairies on its back and then it gets caught up in the water wheel. Now, does it not fly away because the fairies are holding it down? Is this a magic swan? Are the fairies the things we're worried about? I have a lot of questions because this scene seems to, this scene seems to summarize the whole like thematic core of this movie. Is that like... We must save magic, and we can't destroy it. So, what's what's going on in that scene?
1: I mean, you basically summed it all up because it really—it's just a bad way to tell what's happening. Because again, that scene ends with the swan comes out the other side. Yeah, Um, I think it's still alive, and he scoops up the fairies, and he's like, "This won't do. Like, this is boy, howdy, this is bad." And so he's like, hey, guys, like, watch out. And I'm like, he yells at this, like, mill house. Yeah. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, what are they supposed to do? I'm not saying that, like, I don't want this to turn into a thing where I'm, like, arguing against, like, basic environmental protections. Where it's like, they should probably put up some kind of, like, gate or something. But also, yeah, Swan could fly away. It just doesn't.
0: Yeah, okay.
1: It just gets sucked in there. And, like... I don't know. He's just like, be careful with your wheel. And I'm like, do you have anything like productive to add to this? Or like, what are you saying? Like, why do they even have a wheel? Like, what is going on? You know, is there a magical solution you could do for them? I don't know. It's just a weird, like, couldn't you have shown like deforestation or something? Right.
0: Something more clear. I mean, like when we think of something like wolf walkers, like all those elements are clear. It's all right. They're tearing down the forest. That sucks end of that conversation. Let's move on to the next thing. But I just got hung up with this because I also didn't... Usually when you see a swan, that's an extremely evocative animal. And I don't think the swan means anything. It's just the thing that's holding the fairies. Yeah. And again, we could just sit here on this one thing all day. It just baffles my mind how they got to this idea.
1: (laughs) It makes no sense. And that's why, honestly, I think you're hitting it on the head. Which we both touched on previously in this conversation. But like, basically, I think this movie is a lot of like, I don't know, this could be something (laughs) moving on to the next thing. And it's a lot more about just like, and that's why I say it, it has the kind of exuberance of someone who really wants to write a story or like be a writer, but like doesn't actually. Right. Like somebody who is like, I fancy myself a writer, so I'm going to write this story. I'm Peter Dickinson. And I'm like writing a story. And the main character definitely isn't me. And it's just like what would naturally come out of somebody's pen um, when you're not really thinking about it that hard. But you also like you have the things that you like and you have a certain taste that's already been established. And so then it's a lot easier to just be like shooting from the hip. I think this makes sense to like set up the point and then like not really thinking about it past that like not going through those fine details or like returning to it after the fact like nothing in the movie ever touches on the scene again i mean it it sets up the thematic like we need to do something about science because it's like really mucking it up for all the magic creatures but like beyond that no one's ever like oh i hope the fairies are doing well Or, like, even the men that are in the house, like, don't ever show up again, I don't think.
0: No, we kind of jump into, like, a Fellowship of the Ring type of format. So, I mean, thank God there are these stories that are um, well-structured that you could just switch out characters for. Because now we enter, basically, from here going forward, we get kind of like, you know, the wizards meet, and they have their conversation where everything's made very clear about the stakes of the situation. We establish an evil, and then we get our hero's journey, and then it's kind of safe going from there. Like I think it, it's not necessarily propulsive, but at least it's kind of locked into a very clear um, space. So I guess if the hero's journey is good for anything, it's good for people like Rankin and Bass to just get the job done without confusing people like me along the way. So, three cheers for the <laughs>
1: classic quest! Like, yeah, very easy to know. What should be going on and when? And I'm glad you mentioned that, too, because, like, it's really funny to me how this movie will go out of its way to be like, by the way, here are the rules. Because magic, and specifically I'm thinking right now of the fact, so Carolinas is like, well, to solve this problem, Antiquity says I got to call up future Peter and they, he has to go on a quest. And laws dictate that a quest can only be undertaken by, I think you have to have three people at the start, I believe is what the situation (laughs) was. And, like, I think they say that in this Council of the Four Wizards. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, we must do a quest. And the Blue Wizard or somebody is like, the laws dictate that we have to have three people. And, like, no one ever says who did the laws? Where did the laws come from? (laughs) What happens if you violate the laws? But it's just the movie being like, Turning to the camera and being like, by the way, these are the rules. And they are inviolable. Like, we will not fuck with these rules. And then it becomes a plot point. Because they needed it to be a plot point. Yeah. And somehow we've managed to talk around this this entire time. I don't know why. I honestly forgot it even happened until my rewatch. But Peter shows up. He gets sucked into the world of magic. And, uh... Carolinus has two dragons. Like, I guess one of them was like re- retired now. He's like uh, elderly. And so his new dragon is Gorbash, who's great. He's really cute. Love Gorbash. Classic green dragon. Um, but he's young and he's like full of verve. And by some magical means of peril and spell casting, he and Peter get like merged. So Peter spends a lot of this movie in the body of a dragon and Gorbash's personality is like suppressed. So he's not really an active character. And because this happens, this like throws a wrench in their whole deal because they're like, Oh, like, how are we going to go on this quest? We only have two people now because like, like this was three and now they're two people. Just feels very arbitrary. And even like the fact that he gets merged with the dragon, what does that mean? Nothing. It's just something cool that can happen. I think.
0: Yeah. Well now they can explain, uh, the, The the logic of fire breathing.
1: That's so true. It's like literally just like, how do we get the exposition of like how dragons make the fire and fly and stuff? Like, oh, we got to teach him how to be a dragon.
0: Which is, it's, I understand the urge to do that because it is pretty fun. Like I said, this book was uh, a giant deal for me growing up. So I know it's against... Uh, like my instincts as a storyteller to have a scene like this, but I still do it all the time. I wrote a scene about difference equations, like mathematics, in a a book that's not about anything like that. Because I'm like, oh, you know, it would be interesting if we like talk about vampires through math. So I don't know what it is about this sort of thing.
1: Hey, Tolkien did it. Yeah,
0: exactly. It's like a...
1: I mean, if you want to have like a good example of... Like, it can be beneficial for sure.
0: Like, in it, and I think it's okay if it's flavor in the same way some people love the songs in uh, Lord of the Rings. Like, I don't connect with that stuff at all. But I could see how you could like that. Um, it's a great way to, like, you know, I don't know, just establish a world. And uh, so, well, <laughs> now the way... <laughs> I usually, I'm usually i just doing this with this movie because it's quite ridiculous, and this is not going to happen that often, so I'm just going to kind of indulge this. Peter Dickinson, before he enters into his hero's journey, he's approached by Carolinas within the board game, which is laid out on the counter here, <laughs> and he's like, join me down here, shrinks down. Now... They both sit on the dice, and the dice just rocket launch into space.
1: Yeah, the dice turn into rockets, specifically out of the one, which is red on these dice. It's like a black and white, like di- like normal it's just dice set. S- but the red one, snake eyes, it's a rocket you write into Yeah, the and it and the just looks there.
0: so good, because it's not... It's not animated in any interesting way. The, the image just sort of like slides up off the screen with like a rocket. We
1: carefully note also the like yearbook picture laser background that happens at this point. Yeah, we
0: just kind of <laughs> jump out of the movie for a second as we um, cross dimensions. So I just I felt like we needed to, to point that out because <laughs> we're just not going to see moments like that too often. Any yeah. of the
1: Sakuga <laughs> scenes are the ones that we do that warrant discussion For sure. Well, like, what are other just cool things about this we can talk about? I mean, we can talk about uh, the iconic fire-eating scene. A lot of what I I feel like I want to talk about with this movie, honestly, is either, like, how much I'm really into the visuals and design, actually, in a way that I think that is, like, some of the biggest appeal of this movie, and to a lesser extent, maybe Last Unicorn, And then I also kind of want to talk about how I think the storytelling of it is really weird and like maybe dated, but also it's just kind of like what makes this feel kind of like, oh, yeah, like this was made for TV and not like a premiere, (laughs) like theatrical event, like whatever that is that makes it that way. And I think the uh, how do dragons fly and make their fire and all of the stuff scene is really emblematic of that
0: wait are you saying you that scene is um it's it's like the direct to video quality scene it's something that wouldn't make
1: kind of and it's not because like that's a bad thing to include it's just the way that the movie goes about things and goes about including stuff that makes it feel again more like a tv show than it does like this is a scene so uh, to describe it This is a scene where Peter is in Gorbash's body, so he's a green dragon. And then what is in Smurgle? The other, the old dragon is like, okay, you don't know anything about being a dragon, so I'm going to have to teach you. So we're going to have like a little one-on-one time where I educate you on the physicality of being a dragon. And it does, I can see this being in a TV show because that's something that you maybe would need to know. And I'm not saying like in a bad TV show, I mean, a great example of a TV show I can think where I could see something like this would be in is like Avatar, The Last Airbender. Yeah. Because like Mm -hmm. there's a lot of, that gives you a lot more room as a format to be like, in this episode, it's about this thing. So the characters can learn a thing and it doesn't feel like you're wasting time. Whereas in a movie, you have two hours. It's like, how do you have them learn the things that they need to learn, but also have that scene be important in its own right and motivate the plot. Um, So it's a little bit like less pressure almost to have it in a TV show. And in a movie, it feels a little bit like, wait, why are we stopping really quickly for you to be like, like, and this is like the, the gases that we make with like eating this kind of rock and like, da, da, da.
0: Right. I think a bit of what it is, is there's a, just a strong novelty to this, Peter Dickinson's like uh, hypothesis here. Like, I don't think there had really been a book that dealt with this. So I think that really maybe appealed to them. And they're like, we have to give this a scene because we're gonna have this great conversation about, you know, the uh, the honeycomb-like structure of the inner workings of the dragon, the way it fills with air. We're even gonna have one of the dragons like illustrate it on the wall because it's just interesting. It's like something maybe the kids haven't thought about. Isn't it weird that dragon's wings are usually tiny? Like, how do they actually fly? Isn't this a funny conversation? In the same way something like, I don't know, Wreck-It Ralph is like, whoa, what if we talked about, like, what if video games, like, worked like this? What if there was a (laughs) real world within there? Yeah. Like, it's kind of the same novelty. It's just like, oh, let's indulge this topic in a cartoonish way. And uh, the book does it. And, you know, it spends its its whole story doing that because there are no characters in the book. It's just all this content. It's all just the flavor. So I think they were just like, oh, this is maybe what people are here for. <laughs> They're here for this scene, maybe.
1: It's interesting because it's reminding me of something in a completely different genre of storytelling. And that's like vampire movies frequently feel obligated to tell you uh oh that garlic that's a myth. But that thing, but stakes are real. Like stakes kill us or whatever. And like every vampire movie, not literally, but like a lot of them have a scene where they're like holy water? Who told you that? Like that's a myth. <laughs> oh, right. But then and then so they just they're setting up the stakes of like what, you know, how, co- how can the heroes, like, what are their actual options? It's like just a way to tell the audience the rules of this world. And also kind of like wink at the whole, you know, situation. And it feels a little bit like that in this movie, except that it's only in there just for the sake of itself. Right. So there's nothing about how the flight of dragons works physically that helps them win at the end. Except for, sort of. Peter's compulsion to constantly translate the, like, medieval magical understanding of it into modern-day terms. Mm -hmm. So, in this scene, let's just, like, break down the mechanics of how Dragonflight works. Uh, But essentially... (laughs) They start. This is what I find questionable. They, they're they in like a quarry and uh, Smirkle is like shooting fire into this cliff. And he's like, we need gemstones as part of this process. So we steal them from dwarves. Like we rob dwarves to get their gemstones. And I was like, really? Like, is Carolinas cool with that? <laughs> I don't know how I feel about this.
0: Well, this is exactly the type of question that wasn't asked a fantasy at the time because there's no... Like, the dwarves are just a, a functional element of the fantasy world. They're not, like, characters unto they're themselves. People. Yeah, so, which is, like, that's, we we can't do it any other way anymore. I mean, like, we have to give these dwarves agency, even though they're fantasy characters, because, like, these are the practices we need to bring into our real lives, because these are real-world problems, like...
1: Yeah, it, like, brings up way too many questions now, if you don't, <laughs> like... Yeah, these tiny, tiny, tiny little dwarves come out with, like, bags of (laughs) diamonds, and they're like, ooh, and Smirkle's like, get out of here before we eat you. And they do throw in a line where he's like, no, we wouldn't really, like, whatever. (laughs) But it's just, like, they don't know that. And so Smirkle is describing this whole mechanism where dragons eat gemstones, and they swallow them, and they stick in this certain part of their body, like the craw, which I think birds have. And, um... Mm -hmm. This is something that I find very obnoxious, but also endearing about Peter is that he's always like, oh, just like this modern day equivalent, like he's just an encyclopedia of yeah. triv- like science trivia. So he swallows these gemstones and he's like, Smergle's like, you use the diamonds to smash up these stones in your craw. And he's like, just like birds, like do that with seed. Like, I'm like yeah, okay. Can you just like settle down and let the guy teach you stuff? Like You don't need to be constantly interjecting. Um, But what they do after swallowing these gemstones and sticking them in their craw is then they just, like, take big bites of limestone Mm -hmm. and grind it up with the diamonds. And then the limestone, I guess, activates in their stomachs to make hydrogen. Mm -hmm. And that's something that, like... Peter is translating as he's being told this. He's literally like, huh, limestone is high in calcium. When you put calcium in your stomach acids, that makes hydrogen. Hydrogen's lighter than air. Like, da-da-da-da-da. Like, I know science. And it is, at least they give Smeargle, like, the lines of, like, can you just, like, shut up? Like, you're being really obnoxious. Um, So they're having the best of both worlds here, I guess. But... They're doing a lot of legwork here, both to relish in the source material, uh, I guess revel in the source material, (laughs) and also to tell you that Peter is a science boy and he knows a lot of science stuff, which is what ends up saving the day at the end, as it were. So thematically relevant.
0: Yeah, logic wins out and you know then we come we do come back to this again because the ogre is also explained in a similar way very briefly where his bones are uh his bones are like indestructible and he's kind of this immovable object but like yada yada physics so it is a weird relationship of what the physics of this world are which i guess to get bigger with this idea i mean like this is what cartoons are constantly dealing with and having to make clear within their storytelling because like the rules of a drawing can be whatever you want and but if you want to sell somebody on the believability of something through an animated film or illustration you have to like imbue it with some sort of physics and it can be whatever you want as long as it's consistent right that's like the only rule and maybe that's scratching an itch for this like Animation team like Rankin and Bass love animation, so they're thinking constantly about this sort of stuff. So maybe that's kind of where the lore of this book comes from, and the the reason because we constantly are coming back to the buoyancy of the dragons, like the I don't know, like the dirigibleness of them, and how they're they're constantly blowing fire, and it's always a joke about how like turn your head, I'm getting hit with the flame like nine times. Somebody makes that quote unquote joke. Like that's not a joke. That's either scary or should be harmless. Like, pick one. Like, you're you're un we're unclear here on what the fire represents and how dangerous it really is.
1: Yeah, I actually want to say we're. I would like to talk not right now in this moment, but throughout a little bit more about Peter and how he's like a huge dork because the first thing he does when he gets to Magic Town is yeah, he gets I think Smurgle like blows fire in his face. And he goes, wow, I just got singed by dragon fire. This is amazing. Like he's having a great time. And there's like a shot, like a slow zoom into Carolinas' face where he's like, oh no, he's an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) Really funny to me. (laughs) Carolinas is like, oh wait, like we really screwed up here.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Maybe this 777th generation of, uh, like, right? Isn't that the thing? He's like the... Why so far in the future? It's because that's when logic exists or something. Like they have to go to the future. Yeah, to get... no,
1: he's a descendant of some person named Great Peter, whoever that may be. And it says that he's the first person in that line to be a yeah. man of science. Like the first one. So that doesn't bode super well to me, but I guess it works out.
0: <laughs> he's the first one to uh, graduate high school also or something like that.
1: <laughs> Finally. <laughs> like stop imagining dragons.
0: So Peter Peter also falls for um, the daughter of the I think her name
1: is Melisande.
0: Yeah, who has extremely bright lipstick. I think it gets brighter as the movie goes on, actually. It's like neon pink.
1: She's the most 80s damsel design I've seen in a long time.
0: I do like the way, uh, in the context of this movie, I like the way they sort of use her as that kind of fantasy narrative character in the way you get in, like, uh, you know, I mean, the Lord of the Rings movies do this, too, where they have Cate Blanchett kind of explain the backstory. Like, uh, every once in a while, the princess comes in and kind of enlightens you to the stakes of the scene you're kind of entering into as we, like, go through all these, you know, kind of isolated adventures of their journey. Because she's having, like, a dream. Like, she's she's connected to them through, like, a... A dreamscape or something like that? Are you aware of this? Yeah,
1: this is really funny because I'm like, yes, you're right. And I do kind of remember that. But like, why? I don't know.
0: It just sort of phases into the movie. I think it's, um, you, you only notice it once it's been going on for a while, but you forget the origins of it, <laughs> which is something I'm noticing with these movies. I'm like, wait, when was that established? Oh, sort of in this earlier part, but not really. <laughs> I'm constantly thinking yeah. I'm missing something. And sometimes I am, but not always.
1: No, I do. And I, I, I chalk it up a little bit to the episodic nature. And, like, I'll be honest, like, having this movie on again, like, my attention did wander periodically. And it's not – I really think it's just because of that. There's so much going on in this movie when you really think about it. Yeah. So much. Like, we haven't touched on – It's packed, yeah. Half of the events that occur, like the quest – challenges that they overcome. Like we basically haven't talked about at all in detail yet. <laughs> like already we've been to a, a many different places.
0: Yeah. And I'd say I, that's something I really admire about this movie is all the different set pieces. Like the four wizards each have a very compelling realm that they live in. Like they're, they're iconic. I'd say the, the heartless magic devil domain of, uh,
1: Oh, Madonna. James Earl Jones.
0: I mean that that's peak 80s demonic castle right there. Like that's better than anything I remember from He-Man or anything like that. Uh it it looks it looks great.
1: It is really cool. And I also will say now seems like a fine time because you brought up the the four wizards and like I loved the dragons. Like, they're dragons who you barely see yeah. at all are, like, also very distinctly designed. And again, it was totally one of those things that, like, when we were kids, my sister and I would always, like, try to, like, be like, which one is your favorite? Like, which one would be, like, the one that you would have? And uh, But they're so cool. Like, the the blue wizard has a dragon that is, like, this really beautiful, like, pale pink color and has very distinctive, like, eyes and snout. And the uh, the golden wizard is has, like, an Asian-style dragon. He's, like, the Asian wizard. And he has, like, a really long and skinny one with kind of a golden face. It has, like, a very, like, hairy sort of face. And they all are just so distinctive. And Omidon's has the coolest one, obviously, because evil is always the coolest shit. Yeah. And dragon rules. Highly recommend looking him up. He's like classic 80s bad guy thing. But another thing I really like about 80s stuff like this is that they were always really colorful. Like we've talked about that before. Is that for some reason people were just like, make him pink, like whatever. You know, have the bad guy be purple and green and like neon, all this different stuff. And uh, Omidon's dragon is like bright fuchsia underneath. And then he has this like dark top like gray top and like what basically looks like silver metal spikes on his back and like shiny eyelids and he just looks freaking awesome and he's great and like i honestly feel like you almost don't get to see enough dragons in this movie somehow and you totally do like there's a lot of dragons in this
0: yeah it's just it's something about the way they do it though right i think it's kind of the editing of it all like they just move really quickly past these things even though They're kind of on the screen for the same amount of time, but just it's it's hard to put to words exactly. But I I do feel like some of the stuff just falls right out of my head, even though the designs are so compelling. It's just something about the way they're treating them. Um,
1: Yeah, it feels quite dreamlike to me, even to remember watching this. And some of it felt that way when I was watching it now, mm -hmm. Uh, because like Sir Orange shows up, I guess to be the third person on their quest, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah. And he's just this knight that is, like, constantly in his full plate armor that has, like, weird spikes all over it. And he's very, I don't even know, like, very, like, British gentleman, I guess? Something? It's got a little mustache. And he tells, like, there's a sequence in this movie where he tells a whole story about how he found Gorbash the Green Dragon as an egg. And again, it's all like, why are we watching, like, an episode of a TV show for something else in the middle of this movie? Where it's like a full animated sequence where he's like, I was just riding my horse past a bunch of dragon eggs. And then the bad guy's dragon showed up and started eating them. Which is like, why? I don't know. It's never explained. I guess he's just really evil. And that's something that evil people do. Mm -hmm. Evil dragons. And they fight. And like, the dragon survives, obviously. And so does he. So I don't quite remember like who comes out on top in this situation. But Gorbash is the last remaining egg. So now you know something new about Gorbash.
0: Yeah, I mean, it kind of, you get some, these characters are a little more well-rounded than uh, I expected they would be kind of going into this. They have a little bit of a backstory. They have uh, emotional responses to every, not every character individually, but uh, they all play off each other in like different ways, which um, really helps my investment in them. Because in the third act, which I think has some higher emotional stakes, again, than I was expecting. Uh, things kind of, they all, we get a happy ending, but things get kind of dark. And I was like, I was kind of caught up, uh, to be honest, in this sort of third act bit. But we'll get there, because I want to talk a bit more about some of these early scenes here uh, with some of these characters. So, another thing, this this idea of the dreamlikeness i'm i'm very fascinated with trying to understand what makes this movie that one thing i think is that motions are often not completely resolved let alone story but just the way something moves we don't always see like the full arc of like a character opening its wings bringing them down and and settling in and stopping then next scene we sort of get a like Open and cut. And now we're on to the next thing because maybe uh, we got the point and we're not going to pay for all that animation. And I think to me, that's a bit of what makes it dreamlike because a dream is so disjointed. Yeah. We're not getting like the full story of the actions of these characters constantly. And then on top of that, sometimes the dialogue needs an extra draft. Like Sir Orin is like telling his story and he's like, and then I fell in love with the young girl. But of course I waited until she was older to like be in love with her. It's like the way he says it, he kind of goes back and fixes what he said. I'm like, you know, that's why we write a second draft of dialogue.
1: You know what? I totally agree with you, but I think they left shit in like that because they just were too dumb to know that it was really whack.
0: Okay. You think it's just...
1: I want to bring that back too, because I was like, (laughs) oh, like when I was rewatching this, when Peter shows up. Uh, for the first time. And he sees Melisande for the first time. He's like, Hachimachi. Uh, and Carolina says something about, well, like all of those characters were in the board game, including her. So it's like, somehow I knew what she looked like, whatever, I knew what the dragons and all of you wizards looked like. And he says, I made her everything I desire in a woman. Yeah. Just out loud with no <laughs> like pretense whatsoever. <laughs> And then at least he has a good grace to be completely ashamed of that extremely fucking weird thing to say. And her basically dad is like, uh, I mean, you meant to say that, like, <laughs> cause yeah, he's like, oh, I mean to say, uh, and he's like, what you mean to say is what you said, but also he's like way too chill about it. And I'm like, it's just another one of those things where you're like, man, y'all are creepy. I guess like nobody cared about that stuff back then. But you can't just say that,
0: <laughs> so here's a question now, fantasy storytelling in this realm it's it's not as connected to like identity politics and all and all these things, so are they playing off the idea that the fantasy world is this world at the at the whims of the real world like is it it needs to be harmonious and it demands and deserves to be preserved? But is it also here for the human imagination to indulge? Is that why he's okay with Peter like kind of creating this perfect dream character and it's his daughter? He's like, Yes, that's okay, because we're here to serve no, you. Honestly, you don't think so. I love okay.
1: I love your energy <laughs> here, but no, like All right. people were just really, really creepy and like dumb and like didn't know that you couldn't just say shit like that. Like That's again, it's like it's people put that in there without thinking because they don't realize that it's messed up the same way that like a lot of fantasy stuff is incredibly racist. Because like back then people were just really racist and like not thinking about it at best.
0: (laughs) Yeah, at at best. Like nobody And
1: no one would put that line in a movie like in this day and age. True, yeah. Just to be like to tell somebody's dad that like your daughter is like my ultimate fantasy. Like no one would say that. It's just errant foolishness. I don't know. It's just one of those things. I mean, stuff.
0: So I kind of hinted at this earlier, but there. when I was watching this, I did it kind of piecemeal because I, I got a little... My, my mind started to drift about halfway through. So I turned it off and came back to it. And I realized once we got into the third act, once they really... The team is all together and they've got this like singular goal, right? They're like on their way into the dark realm. They've kind of entered into this Mordor type thing. The stakes actually started to like feel weighty all of a sudden. And then I'm even surprised to see characters die in this, which we'll get into a minute. But there's some well-composed shots that come right in this bit. It begins to me where, uh, and I'm just going to point out a couple things I like because I feel like I am harsh on these things that, you know, people have strong feelings for. When the ogre comes in, I think that scene is is quite well done. It's framed well. The fight, it's, it's really quick, but it's shot from interesting angles. The ogre dies off screen, which in this case I think is fine. Sometimes there's uh, action scenes in these movies that again, are unresolved in weird ways, like something happens off screen, but it's unclear exactly what happened. It's clear the ogre dies, and I like that we see his shadow kind of like fall down the wall. And uh, another thing I like about this just movie overall is when a character is large, it is um, often mostly outside the frame. Like the ogre, when he's introduced, we're only seeing like bits over his shoulder or just his massive hand coming through a wall. Um this is some like solid directing overall which I I just want to point out cuz I I feel like I keep bashing on on this director team for not knowing what they're doing but sometimes they lock it in and they get you give you a cool moment.
1: I think yeah the the magic and action stuff is probably where they would shine the most which does make sense to me with their general pedigree.
0: Now the ogre scene gets doubly strong because uh this is the moment when the elder dragon dies. I forget his name, but respect to him. And uh, it's just done kind of nice. The movie slows down a little bit. They're on this nice uh, over like walkway on the top of the castle, and it starts to rain just a little bit, and the two dragons share kind of like a nice parting moment. I don't know. I like that. That, that was something that was surprising me because it's just one of those things this movie doesn't really, you know... The ranking and Bass vibe is, is not really to like slow down and have a little moment like that. It's not exceptional. I won't say that. But uh, it, it was nice. In
1: context. Yeah. <laughs> it stands out.
0: Yeah, it's just a nice little death scene. A tender, a tender death scene. And then on top of that, we get some more death, which is only temporary. But um, the villainous dragon basically defeats everybody on this team one by one. Which is it's pretty rough. Again, we don't we know this isn't really like a kids movie, so these things are just happening cuz without thinking about how a kid's going to respond to this stuff. But if I watched like a big fuzzy wolf get dashed to the ground by a giant dragon when I was a kid, like, I don't know, that's that's kind of tough. That's a tough thing to see.
1: I don't remember how I felt about that when I was a kid. I don't know. I mean, it's possible that I just saw this movie like at a young enough age that I didn't really react to it and then by the time I was watching it like with conscious brain, I like knew what was going to happen and so it didn't matter. But I just like I mostly remember just being like dragons are awesome.
0: <laughs> yeah, the dragons are given all the love here. Like I'm maybe I'm giving it a little too much credit. These characters are killed. I wouldn't say um it It's like evoking like strong emotions in me other than I'm like, whoa, I'm kind of surprised you did that. But it's not, you know, when we do something like All Dogs Go to Heaven or a movie like that where it's actually, you know, the deaths are, are things to see. Like the deaths in this, the characters usually there's like three frames of animation and they're like falling over. They're just like on their side facing away from the camera. Like we're not getting a sense of their death.
1: <laughs> yeah. So it like makes genuine it, mortality.
0: Yeah, it makes sense that you as a kid weren't quite, um, you know, locked in because the dragons we see their faces a lot. Like we, their eyes are so big and uh, emotive.
1: Yeah, that's like what I spend a lot of time when I'm watching this scene at the end with the evil dragon who has a name and I can never. It's like Breagh or something super fantasy ish. Um, but when he's like going to town on this whole. D&D party essentially like I'm mainly just looking at him because he has such a cool design and his face or his claws are usually taking up the vast majority of the screen there are a lot of times where you see his face looming in and it's like literally no part of the face is fully contained in the frame yeah. like there will be shots where like it's his face. But like the back of his head is off screen and then the tip of his nose is also off screen on the other side. So it's just like he's just huge. And yeah, they're giving him a lot of attention. I wonder if we can do like a frame calculation of like how frequently is he taking up what percent of the frame? I mean, it's always <laughs> like 65 percent at least. Yeah. It, usually more than that.
0: And I, I think that's something they're also pulling from the book too, because the idea of the scale of dragons is a big part of that book, because it's about like how, how do we, we need to discover how they fly. And for that to seem amazing, we have to also convey like how large they really are. Um, so I like that the movie's kind of just putting that forward at all times. Just the, the, the amazingness of dragons is really what this movie's about.
1: Yeah, like, y'all know we here for the dragons. There,
0: there's, there's not a lot of action movie tropes that really, like, catch my attention in a way where I'm kind of thrilled. But there is one, and this movie does it. And I think it does it pretty well. So I'll put it in the category of, uh, like, in the last, in the endgame Marvel movie where uh, Captain America's left on his own and he has to, like, face... All the characters, you know, he has to face all the villains all at once. And he, he's just like ready to do it. And he, he he goes forward on his own. Like that sort of thing always brings a tear to my eye when there's like one hero left and they're going to go forth, even though it's like, free, you know, there's no expectation that they're going to win. There's a nice little moment here in this last fight scene where our our fellowship is all defeated except for our knight and he gives like a little speech what does he say oh he's talking to his sword and this is the moment when um i think the villain like accuses him of praying or tries to shame him for like having a moment of like religious comfort but he's holding his sword and he like says, cut well, old friend and farewell. Like, I don't know. I, I didn't tear up, but I just thought that was a, a nice little beautiful line. And then he does something pretty sweet, which is he holds it up. The dragon breathes flame on it. It gets red hot and then he fucking throws it into him. I'm like, Dope. that's pretty clever. I, th- I think that's a good action scene, actually.
1: <laughs> yeah, I like that. It even feels like, a, like there's thematic resonance there, I guess, or I'm. I don't know if it's like applies to the theme of the movie, but it's like using defeating the villain with its own weapon,
0: yes, yeah, totally, which is very
1: elegant. I mean, it's not original, but that's not the point, you know, like, yeah, th- it's not this movie's not breaking new ground, but then, yeah, like, credit where credit is due, like, that was well done,
0: yeah, so that's when and then
1: now I die, <laughs> right? <And> he dies,
0: <laughs> right? And then suddenly we get the worst scene in the movie, which is what when he dies, simply just. Because it is time. It Literally
1: says, so now I die. I hope those are my last words.
0: <laughs> I hope so. And I hope I'm there to hear it.
1: <laughs> That's a dope way to go out, honestly. Surrounded by friends and family, ideally. But just I go, so now I die.
0: <laughs> I mean, is this... Um, again, maybe are we going to give this movie too much credit by saying this is just the inevitable outcome of Peter's game? Like all these characters are... You know, on in in the game he's playing. Like he's like two levels of Avatar. We're like watching the story through his eyes, sort of, but he's also in in full control of everything. So are these characters just meant to die because that's how a game
1: I don't know like
0: or something? I, I don't know. Because why does he die that way? Why do they all die? I don't it doesn't really make sense.
1: But that's why, honestly, so I don't think I, this movie is such a patchwork, I guess. Yeah. Because, yeah, like, yes, there are moments that are effective. There are moments that are good uh, and interesting. And then, but I do think, like, if you look too hard at this plot and you don't have to look that hard at it, it just crumbles into dust because it doesn't make any sense. Like, it does, if you look at it that way, it doesn't follow a board game. It does follow a and d campaign. yeah. But that's not that's also not the terms that they couch the movie in. So the board game itself as a framing device doesn't quite work when you think about it. No. Although we don't actually know the rules of this board game. It it has like a little path on it and everything, kind of game of life It style. looks like Candyland. Yeah, like something yeah. like that. <laughs> and so it's it's not clear. And then it kind of feels like, well, is this just another incidence where they're using that as a metaphor? But like it doesn't quite land because nobody really took the time to think about what that meant and like this is unrelated to the the board game thing, but I was just about to say this um because we were talking about that those nice scenes, like with the knight and all that, but to to take away the credit that we've just given <laughs> from moment to moment, we give it the credit, and then we take it right back. All of the heroes are now deceased, and Gorbash the slash peter has been asleep because in this whole showdown they played this like magic flute of sleeping that they got at the beginning of the movie right uh and all of the dragons are like put into a magical sleep except the bad guy who wasn't there at the time so he's dead actually uh but because gorbash is like asleep as a dragon now peter in his mind can just pop up out of him for the final confrontation which just like doesn't, okay, like, sure. <laughs> so it's just one of those things where, like, nobody set that up. Yeah. It just happens. And, like, we're here to see that it happens, and that's it. And even the guy's like, huh? Oh. Like, I'm James Earl Jones. What? And Peter's just, like, explaining what happened. Like, huh, since Gorbash was asleep, I could just feel myself, like, being an individual again. So anyway, here I am. <laughs> Let's do this. And then they have their their final fight, which is the Sakuga moment that I was talking about earlier, Mm -hmm. because this is really rad. Obadon is kind of a hilarious character. I think his design's really fun. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And at this point, he's basically like a goblin. Like the other wizards are all obviously like human men, essentially, with like questionably exaggerated, probably racial features to some degree and then omadon is just like he's got like fangs and like a horn on his nose i don't know i mean also probably questionable i don't know but like and he's like blue basically like his skin is like gray blue and he's all in red and he has his fancy little crown Um, his robes are incredible and he starts to like swell up in this really horrific way and then a million dragon heads pop out of his back <laughs> and it's fucking awesome. And they're all dragon heads that look just like his dragon. Yeah. And that's why this is the soccer part because we get like five recur- like back-to-back shots of all of these dragons popping out in different ways in different angles. And it's really good. And then there's like a cool shot of all of them like kind of swarming around with Omidon's head sticking out of the bottom. Or there's like a shot facing Peter and all the heads are like a shadow, like writhing on the ground. It's pretty
0: cool. So like this, this villain, I mean, he's got to kind of represent something. Otherwise, how do you get, I mean, I don't think you randomly come to this cool idea unless you're trying to say something. So is he, he has like a couple of cool lines that seem to be hinting at something about magic and science coming together in an ungodly way. He says, I am the world and the world is undone, which is just a cool line. Not exactly sure what it means, but he also talks earlier about um, teaching man to use machines. I'll show him what distorted science can give birth to. I don't know if this is really coming up, but is there something like just garish about what he intends to do to uh, like humanity like he's not he's not it's not that he's going to destroy everything he's going to like turn it into like an ungodly mutation and is that why we get this like freakish incident of all these dragon heads coming out of him like
1: i don't really i'm glad you brought this up though because we sort of skimmed he's trying to
0: figure out the villain yeah we
1: skimmed over a little bit um when he's giving his powerpoint in the the council of the wizards part at the beginning of this movie they basically are all gathered together to be like, what should we do about protecting magic? And he's like, you guys want to put magic in like its own little bubble world. Like that's stupid. Uh, I actually think we should like own the hell out of men by like enacting war. Essentially. There's a lot of uh, imagery that he invokes at this point where he, he like turns into a mushroom cloud at one point while he's talking and, Uh, Obviously, you know, we're seeing some weird depictions of this, but like it sort of gives you the impression that his whole deal would be to make us basically how we turned out now. Like he's saying, like, I will, you know, make it so that man uses his science and logic to blow himself up. Yeah, And there's like you see a panning shot of like the like forest just like leveled and like all the trees are cut down and he says something like i'll teach him how to fly like a fairy and you see a bomb like like the like a nuclear bomb like being launched and then exploding and the mushroom cloud turns back into him again it's very like oh you guys want science and magic like i'll you know make it's That's why another thing is like, I feel like they're trying to say something, but it doesn't quite make sense to me because to me, this is just the inevitable conclusion of science. And maybe the implication we're supposed to take away here is that if we keep magic in the world, we won't use science in these horrible ways because we'll have like imagination and like harmony and like all of this stuff, but... At the end of the movie, they banish magic away to the bubble zone, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. I feel like that was the whole thing that they were fighting for in the first place. So like it does have a very mixed message. And I think it's just they're trying to have this like, you know, we need to be harmonious to survive and because that's good for people and shutting out magic and imagination is bad. But then it still ends with them doing that. Right. And also the bad guy is science-based to some degree even though his whole deal is like I know science is dumb, the sun is the sun, things are what they are, like magic is, like is the thing and science is not the thing.
0: Yeah, it's funny how close it treads into just almost kind of addressing like I don't know cold world paranoia or something, which is not anything we have been talking about in any of these two films but it like it's yeah it's almost right there and then it's just not again because it doesn't connect to anything else like like you said it's that dreamlike logic of this Is That whole why thing. he's
1: the red wizard?
0: I guess. I mean
1: and not like the black wizard. Yeah. Doing black magic. Yeah.
0: I don't know. It's yeah, I mean unanswered questions galore. So to to wrap this up we have, we have a a character unaddressed that we need to talk about. And I don't know what to make of it. Maybe you do. Antiquity. (laughs) Carolinus is always addressing it as like, antiquity chose Peter because he represents logic and truth. Like there's antiquity, we're we're paying heed to it with like our choices and the things we do are to appease antiquity. Is that what's going on here? And what is antiquity exactly? Is it like an ancient God figure?
1: It's completely unclear. Even as a kid, like, I, we kind of puzzled over that a little bit. Because, like, all antiquity is, as just, like, a baseline concept, is, like, old. It's old time. Like, antiquity is, like, old civilization. Yeah. I don't understand.
0: Is there a purity to it or something, maybe? that.
1: I think maybe the only, like, the implication is, like, this... Is some kind, it's so ancient that it is inherently wise, yeah, like some kind of being that's been around for so long that it has just knowledge that we can't comprehend. But, like, the movie clearly has no interest whatsoever in actually explaining it, which I guess is like a tough choice for you to make if you're writing a story like this because you don't want to ruin the mystique mm-hmm. of it. I don't know, but I feel like. This isn't the same, but I feel like Lord of the Rings sort of edges into this sometimes with the elves or with Galadriel specifically, with like the fact that these elves are kind of magical. It's, you know, implied that they can see things, especially Galadriel, like literally has the ability to do that. Uh, But it's not it's not made more than what it is. She's also like somebody you can see and talk to. Mm -hmm. And antiquity is just like a tree. (laughs) (laughs) Voiced spectacularly by Paul Frees again, who narrated that Mars and Beyond Disney thing. Yeah. So, really resonant, lovely voice. But, I don't know. That's why a lot of this movie, I look at it and I'm like, this is fun. I don't, I totally get why I liked it as a kid. And, like, I enjoy it now. But I think it really is what it is in a lot of ways. Like, some of it is just because they're pulling from fantasy stuff in a way that you do if you have like read or absorbed a lot of fantasy but don't output a lot of your own work Mm -hmm. per se or haven't really honed that ability so it's like yeah the protagonist is like a like a, a white dude of a certain age and like the love interest is like the only female present i'm honestly really surprised that there is like Danielle the Archer yeah. is like another woman who like gets like maybe that feels a little bit eighties where every now and then they were like eh have another like you can have one more but like no more than two
0: <laughs> yeah
1: I don't know like it does it's very tropey in so many ways uh so I think some of it is just like they're just leaning on those to tell the story like why does antiquity need to be involved at all it doesn't really like Carolinas could just know what they need to do or they could have just come up with the the solution to this quest that he could have just like scried it in a crystal ball but he doesn't you know they include the antiquity thing
0: yeah i guess maybe they
1: just wanted paul Fries to be in it
0: (laughs) yeah and i guess with these sort of the fun of fantasy storytelling is to evoke like this massive span of time with just like he little hints of flavor in the wording, like the way a character says something or just a, you know, a term that is like unclear exactly what it means, which means it it exists from beyond like reason and logic, like a time you don't, you can't even understand. I guess it's just like a fun thing to kind of think about. It's something you can't do in other types of storytelling. So maybe it's just, you know, doing it because it can. And I think, to me to kind of wrap it up, unless you have any other magical moments from this story you wanna
1: The only magical moment I have from this story that I always forget is that it ends with Peter selling the pawn guy a golden shield that was also one of like the magical items he gets at the beginning. Right. <laughs> and he's like, Hachimachi, like how do you have this?
0: Well, and then on top of that, the princess shows up and she one-ups him with the uh the, the villain's crown.
1: with the <laughs> evil crown.
0: And of course, Peter's got a uh, maybe a schoolgirl fetish or something because his perfect woman that he's designed is now dressed in like kind of a pleated dress, sort of like, where'd she get this outfit? Like, this is Peter's imagination at play. Like,
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the worst part about this is that like Melisande shows up. I guess she's just decided to live in this time period now to be with her BF that she kissed like one time. Yeah. Uh, but not only that, but like, Caroline's drops her off because you get kind of like a ha-ha, right. like I'm flying away on my dragon shot, like over the skyline of Boston. Yeah. And I'm like, you can tell that Peter Dickinson wrote this. You know what I mean? Not necessarily the actual person, but just like whoever wrote <laughs> this was like, I'm Peter and I'm writing from Peter's perspective. Yeah. <laughs> okay.
0: Cool. Which I think actually... Not to like overthink it again, which is not hard to do with with this stuff, but like
1: the podcast
0: <laughs> this is this is what fantasy storytelling is becoming it 's like there 's all these pieces you can move around and recycle in different ways, and anybody can use them because we all have a, enough of a sense of what they represent that we can tell like these little one off small stories and I think that 's why i 'm kind of okay with this movie being a little light and fluffy because it seems like it's kind of representing that. And I'm actually okay that all the characters come back to life at the end because it is a D&D campaign. It's a bunch of friends that got together. They had an adventure. Some of them made, of it, made it. Some of them made it. Some of them didn't. And now it's over and we can start again. Like all the dragons are back. Like I think uh, Carolina says, he's like, uh, oh yeah, the magic world is, it's like, it's there for a length of a dream or like a flash of inspiration. It's like, this place is always here for you when you need it. And I don't know. That's, I think that's kind of like a nice sentiment. I don't know if they're just stumbling into that message at the end or if that's what um, they're actually trying to tell whoever's watching this. Who the hell knows?
1: Only the dragons. <laughs> <laughs> we got to get Don McLean on this podcast.
0: Yeah, actually. Yeah, that'd be nice.
1: That's all for now. Uh, please join us next week as we creep into the dragon zone with and much like The Hobbit. Ooh. Classic.
0: Yeah, riddle. Riddle in the dark there
1: multiple riddles even and one of the most terrifying scenes again for a young mind to experience
0: while you're waiting for the hobbit you can check out our episode archive and other stuff about us at cartoonfeelings.com and tweet at us or join us on instagram both of those are sitting for you waiting at feeling cartoons
1: like a trove of dragon jewels they are waiting Uh, and if you have any thoughts or questions Please feel free to write us at cartoonfeelingspodcast at gmail.com. Any thoughts, feelings, uh, dragons that you like. And if you are enjoying the podcast, we would be super grateful if you would consider taking the time to rate us on Apple Podcasts or leave a review or both. And uh, more than anything else, if you just share us with your friends, if you think that they would enjoy it, uh, that would be really cool. Thank you.
0: That's all for now, folks. We'll see you next time.